Yeah, before we jump in, I was going to, I know I mentioned it to you in my email, but, um, you know, this translation that I picked up from the local bookstore is definitely like, it's very modernized. So yeah, you've who's, got- Who's the what, guy? Who's the guy that you have? Dave, David Ferry. Mm-hmm. Is his name? Who who uh, was the translator there? Or This is, is, that this just... is uh, Andrew George. So, um, okay. I mean, th- this is an edition from uh, 2019. So this is, a, he had an edition, I think, from the 90s. And he just recently updated it with like more, you know, there's been more fragments of tablets found and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good translation, but it would be interesting since like we, we've read different editions. Uh, I could also tell based on your notes that um, we have like, like, like some, some of the specifics that you get into don't really appear in my, in my edition. Right. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it could be because like maybe something is grabbed from like some of the, uh, you know, Gilgamesh poems as opposed to the epic. Um, but, you know, finding these discrepancies is, is interesting. Oftentimes if I'm like reading something about Gilgamesh online, it's just sort of like, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the reference is because it's not something that I read in the text. Right. So, but, you know, it, it's kind of it, it's interesting in the sense that you're, you're forced to have this comprehensive kind of, you know, point of view. Right. Where, you know, little pieces you get or you don't get uh, not having or having these fragments, you're going to have your interpretations a little bit different. Right. Um and yeah, so uh, I think it's actually a, a good choice, even if it seems a little counterintuitive, that we just kind of are going into this a little bit blind, right? I haven't read your edition, you haven't read mine, but I think it's good. Yeah, I, I agree. I do have the Andrew George translation pulled up on Internet Archive, so mm-hmm. uh, I'll I'll be able to reference that as we go along. And um, but yeah, like I said, I I made little little note, mm-hmm. you know, noted pages of hopefully the same approximate. Um, you know, section mm-hmm. that you would have highlighted in your notes. Maybe we read the George version of it. Maybe we read the fairy version of it. Talk mm-hmm. about uh, how that all comes together. But yeah, I, I did enjoy reading this version just because it's it's a little bit like maybe what an, an epic poem like this would be stylized as if someone was writing it today. Uh, or mm-hmm. in, in his case, this was an early 90s translation. So it, it's it's sort of this odd dissonance in a way because you're reading about these old time epic characters and and still you know the names of the gods their names the places that they go all these things but then some of the language is very uh, just sort of pared down and oblique and modernized in a way that mm-hmm. uh, that that you'll see or viewers will see just offers a little something different as you're going through so uh, hopefully it'll be beneficial for everybody. Yeah, and I mean, uh, uh, I guess we could get into some of the uh, specifics now about uh, these, you know, the history of of this epic. But one thing I'd point out is, um, so like, I'm not sure exactly how, you know, a a translator should handle uh, this translation specifically, because, you know, I don't read these uh, languages. But um, uh, 
it, it strikes me as like you do want to sort of modernize things a little bit uh, simply because of the fact that, I mean, Gilgamesh compared to, I'd say, most epic poems, it really is a lot more modern, right? Um, yeah. You know, com compared to the Odyssey, compared to even, you know, the Iliad, like uh, it's it, it's definitely more modern. It, it's more, it's even more character driven, right? Where you get so many nuances and so many kinds of like, uh, you know, like uh, Gil Gilgamesh might be uh, sort of characterized a certain way, but then you immediately see uh, a set of behaviors that contradict that. And then after that, you see some other kind of transformation. You don't get that as much with, with these other uh, ancient epics, right? Which, um, so like you would think like, okay, so if you have this truly modern technique um, uh, th that that is not really available el elsewhere, uh, when it comes to the individual lines, how you might phrase certain things, like I think it makes sense, right? I, I think I could uh, justify some of these like slightly more uh, modernized uh, renderings of, of lines that might, you know, be a little bit more prosaic otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, do you want to get into like the, uh, uh, the like the history of of uh, the text, like I guess the the various versions and how it, it came to be, how it is now? um you know our editions that we yeah. read today yeah i think i think we should and we can talk a bit about uh, for for me when i was going through i was asking myself why why is this poetry why is this one of our oldest versions of poetry and it is an epic poem um so it's it's quite a bit different from a lot of the poetry we might read today and and striking from the standpoint of um with this and with other epic poems from the past, there's this sense that there have that these characters have to be really grand. They have to go to epic places. They have to have these battles and and do glorious things uh, for it to be noteworthy enough to put down in an oral tradition and then maybe now in in a written form like they were on on these tablets. Whereas today, a lot more poetry, some of it can still have that flavor to it, but it uh, you can have just as good and, and in fact quite a bit better poetry from small moments insignificant people or insignificant seeming things and extract meaning out of it so it's interesting to read something like this from so long ago and trace poetry's arc to today but um one of the things that maybe we can go back and forth on is you know why this why did this become one of our oldest examples of of poetry in in any way but uh but yeah let's talk a little bit about how it came to be right there were these these different tablets that that were what written out what were the approximate years on this it's um, uh, it's like, like I, I, think, I think yeah the, the the first ones um you would have um uh what do i have here uh so when he, I mean, when he, so this is after he was deified, right? So like Gilgamesh himself, like uh, from like 2,900 to maybe like 2,300, uh, people don't exactly know uh, when he was the uh, the king of uh, Uruk, right? The the city state. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at some point for whatever reason, he was deified. He, he became a part of this kind of, you know, cult tradition. And um, the so like the 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 uh, so it's like the uh, the old Babylonian and then the standard edition. So the old mm -hmm. Babylonian is um, so it's twenty one hundred BCE, yep. and the recompiling uh, also like, don't exactly know when it was done, but the latest is like twelve hundred BCE. So you know a little more than uh, three thousand years ago at this point. 
uh, it would be the latest point that that uh, the edition that we're talking about was was uh, recompiled, right? Um, into the standard Babylonian, yeah. as it's known now. Yeah. Um, okay. Which comes in at least a few hundred years before anything that's the oldest from, for example, the Bible, mm-hmm. as far as we know, right? So, the, and we'll talk later about some of the, the tales and the scenes in here that predate things biblically. And, uh, and we've even, we've got a, what a special little video mm-hmm. later on to talk about some of those yeah. parallels, but yeah, that's, um, that's just it is, it's, it is ancient writing a few thousand years old at this point And, composed in these various tablets. Um, I don't think I've got a whole lot more to, to say about the history of it. I mean, I, I suppose like most other ancient epics were approximating this took place in, in the ancient Middle East, it, mm-hmm. you know, Iraq and Iran, these, these kind of physical mm-hmm. geographies, right? That's the yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how your edition differs in this respect, but um, I, I actually have uh, like, you know, when you have like a, a broken tablet, right, from the standard edition where uh, you sort of have to make guesses uh, as to what's written in there. Um, uh, oftentimes, uh, Andrew George is just like retranslating pieces from uh, the Gilgamesh poems, right? So before like you, you had mm-hmm. the what is known as the Epic of Gilgamesh, you had the the Gilgamesh poems. Um, and also he's using uh, pieces from the uh, old Babylonian epic as well, right? So if you have like, a, 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 you know, information that's missing, it's just sort of kind of uh, filled in, right? So, and, and some of it doesn't seem to truly fit. But uh, again, like, I, I think that's one of the kind of uh, quaint features that, that does add to it, right? Um, you, 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 you definitely get the sense that, you know, Gilgamesh himself and it and Enkidu uh, are, are both, you know, like fully formed human beings. But you're also getting a little bit of that from from the fact that you know the, whatever might might have really been the standard edition uh, a thousand years before that, you could have just you know collected so much of a tradition already, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that could really help flesh out some of the characters, and I mean, you know, w- when you're wondering about, well, why is this in so many respects uh, just often better than a lot of uh, ancient poetry? Uh, I, I think that might be one of the reasons, right? Like, what, why, why is Enkidu or, or Gilgamesh more human? Like, well, maybe it's because they are a collation, essentially, right? Um, mm-hmm. Of of uh, uh, so much, right? That that would otherwise like not really be put in, right? If you're just like an individual writer, right? Just kind of putting stuff together, uh, and and you're limited by your time period, and you're limited by the fact that you know, you don't have much of a tradition to work with. Well, uh, if someone else kind of steps in and, and adds to it simply out of necessity, right, um, you, you might come out with something a little bit better given, you know, given the uh, uh, given the fact of what's actually missing, right, before. Today, I, I think it kind of goes the opposite way, right? The, opposite, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. more people that get involved in a work of art, the worse <laughs> yeah. that it is. Like, sometimes I wonder, like, oh my God, like, can you imagine that, like, movies, right? They're, like, to me, it's so fascinating that you could have, like, something called a great film, right? Simply because you, you need, at this point, oftentimes, like, dozens of people involved. 
mm-hmm. right? And and right. you just and you just I I just imagine myself if I were in that situation, it's like I would want to like whip everybody into like one singular vision, right? But it, that's kind of hard to do, and you have to be respectful of like the fact that you know if you're a director or a writer, you know you have twenty other people that are you know uh, oftentimes artists in their own right that you can't just you know uh, run r- roughshod over them, but. Yeah. Uh, I, I think if you have something that's sort of missing to begin with, uh, the advantage does go the other way. Yeah. So. Right. I, I, th- I think you're right in that this benefits from uh, the chiming in of, of some other voices and translators and, and people piecing it together over time. And and it is, to me, some of the most interesting things about this poem are the the failures that the characters go through, both, mm-hmm. both of their character and uh, some of their literal undertakings and and it creates like you said these moments of a bit more humanity um that that come through and and a lot of the writing is good and it's it's pretty uh, it, it is poetic there are a number of moments of beauty or intrigue or um multiplicity or ambiguity that that come in and uh, that is one of the things i liked about my translation in particular was that i felt like some of that is is pretty well written and comes through in a, a modern sensibility. So, um, yeah, it's it, it, there's a lot to unpack and, and a decent amount to recommend in here. So, what do we want to do? To, I guess we'll just well, start. I, I, well, I guess for for anyone that hasn't um, read it, uh, do you want to just like uh, give like a, a synopsis of what happens in the text, and then we could get into the individual tablets and scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, I mean, I, I, ha- I have a summary here. If you want me to read it or if you're ready to go, we could just do that too. Uh, why don't you go ahead with your summary? I'll, I'll fill in any gaps that seem to, to pop up and then we'll make a mm-hmm. couple more comments before diving into some specific writing yes. sections. So, so, so the text opens up with um, uh, Gilgamesh being presented as, you know, king of Uruk uh, uh, in, in very kind of, you know, highfalutin language, right? He's mm-hmm. very much praised by by the narrator of the text. Um, he's uh, said to be wise, right? It starts by saying, uh, at least in my edition, he who saw the deep, right? Gilgamesh who saw the deep. Mm-hmm. Um, but it very quickly takes this kind of interesting turn where after like about a page, page and a half of praise for Gilgamesh and, and his wisdom, uh, without any sort of you know explanation, it immediately goes into Gilgamesh who is oppressing his people right gilgamesh Mm -hmm. who is harrying you know uh his his citizens both men and women in various ways um and uh it it gets so bad that uh the townspeople they end up kind of crying out uh to the gods for some sort of you know uh, answer to this And, and the answer that's come up with is uh, they uh, ultimately construct uh, Inkiru, right, from kind of like the dust, right, this wild man who is supposed to be uh, as powerful, right, and as wise as Gilgamesh, right? And eventually uh, the two meet, and after they meet, right, they, they brawl, right? And uh, although uh, Inkiru loses that brawl, right, he, he's powerful enough that Gilgamesh is, is ready to respect him. And um, for the first time, it, this isn't made explicit, but when Gilgamesh leaves instruction for how uh, his town is, is supposed to be kind of cared for as he goes off on his adventures with Enkidu, um, uh, it, you get the sense that, you know, perhaps like for the first time, like the town is getting some some respite, right, from this kind of tyranny. And uh, uh, they go off to the cedar forest. They, they fight this um, uh, giant uh, uh, Humbaba, uh, and uh, a- after they defeat Humbaba, 
uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, uh, they go back and they're, they're praised by, by the townspeople. Uh, the goddess, what's her name? Ishtar. Yeah, Ishtar mm-hmm. uh, ends up falling in love with Gil- Gilgamesh and uh, trying to, you know, seduce him into marriage. And he rejects her. He points out to the fact that, hey, you know, look at everybody that you married before you, right? And they're mm-hmm. all in some sort of uh, dire straits. There's <laughs> one like little interesting kind of a thing where uh, I think it's Ishtar's uh, brother, um, uh, uh, be- because of her, she tries to like take over, uh, uh the, uh, I think it's the underworld at some point. And, um, uh, her brother is like condemned to spend like half of the year in the underworld, right. And, and switch places with his wife. And, um, that's supposed to, you know, explain the seasons in the same way that we have Persephone, right. In, in Greek mythology, explaining the, the seasons, right. By having yeah. to spend, uh, half of her time in the underworld with Hades. Um, so, uh, she, so Gilgamesh rejects her and says, "I, you know, I'm not going to do this to myself because I know where this is going to end up." She gets upset. She, you know, demands the gods send uh, the 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 bull of heaven to kill Gilgamesh and Enkidu and uh, you know destroy the town. Uh, they they ultimately defeat th- this bull and this this dams um, Enkidu to death. Right? Uh, the gods come together and they say, "One of you has to die." They choose uh, Enkidu. Uh, uh, Gilgamesh is in mourning, so this seems to have this kind of like psychological effect on him. So he ultimately like just goes around trying to find uh, a, like real like like literal immortality. Right? Yeah. Um, fails to do so, and then it seems like he realizes that. Uh, whatever immortality that I could get, right? It, it's better served by uh, creating, you know, valuable works for people and for the world, uh, as opposed to seeking this thing, right? Of um, just, just kind of, you know, trying to live forever. And it, it's sort of like, and like the way that it opens up, uh, sort of giving this kind of vista, right, in, into the city of Uruk. It kind of ends in that same way too. Um, it's this like yeah. interesting kind of circle that, again, like a very kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say it's a new technique, but, you know, it, it, in terms of what we have available, it's different from ancient poetry and it's much closer to what we, we would find today, right, in writing yeah. as opposed to um, uh, what we would expect from from uh, uh, older writing. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really good synopsis. Um, the We'll get into it more specifically. The only thing that came to mind immediately was the dream series that Gilgamesh goes through. Mm-hmm as he and Enkidu are setting out toward the Cedar Forest and mm-hmm. the constant positive spin on the interpretation uh, from Enkidu. And, and that's, it is a bit of a fulcrum in the text. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll get more specific on that. And I was going to ask you as well, because um, I didn't click all the way through to the end of the Andrew George translation. Is tablet 12 included in that where, um, where Gilgamesh loses his quote drum and drumstick into the underworld and speaks uh, again with Enkidu. I think he puts it into an appendix, like with a summary. But um, uh, I, I don't think it's in here. This the, my, my edition is uh, uh, the, the poem uh, plus like s- some of the kind of uh, older poetry related to the Gilgamesh cult. Um, but, but but so like, uh, can you? Because uh, I noticed that in your notes, but I since I didn't remember reading that, I, I wasn't sure what to refer to. So what happens with this drumstick, and and what is the purpose of? Um, tablet 12 since we're just kind of summarizing still yeah so it, it is basically a, an appendix or or epilogue kind of piece it's not very long at all probably about the same length as any of the other tablets mm-hmm. but it kicks off with uh, 
you know, it feels almost like a jump cut to some years later or something, right? And and so Gilgamesh has been in the home of a carpenter and had a drum and drumstick fashioned for himself that then fell through a quote a hole in the floor or a hole mm-hmm. in the earth down into the netherworld. And he has this conversation with Enkidu where he asks about uh, the possibility of retrieving it or Enkidu even offers to, to get it for him. And so there's this setup where the reader thinks that, that maybe they'll have some kind of reunion or, or maybe, um, maybe Enkidu can come back to life or be resurrected. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not quite sure what's going to happen. And basically they do talk for a bit and they have this moment of going toward that kind of thing. And more or less, it, it's just shown once again, that Enkidu is essentially a, a spirit or a shadow at this point and will not mm-hmm. be returning. And so then when Gilgamesh realizes that he just starts asking Enkidu about the netherworld. Uh, it's this uh, curiosity of sorts where he, um, he kind of says, Hey, I've heard this about it. Is that true? Or, or tell me how this goes uh, mm-hmm. according to, to what we've heard before. And Enkidu kind of walks him through it. So I'll, in my translation, I'm happy to, maybe when we get through to that, mm. to the end of all the other 11 tablets, uh, read a couple of sections that I thought were a interesting be some good writing and good mm. phrasing and and maybe lastly just sort of set up a couple interesting juxtapositions with the rest of the text because it ends in a similar similar to what you just said with the end of tablet 11 for the main story where it's this sort of pan out where we're just looking at uruk again and mm-hmm. it, it's sort of just left uh in in a way that feels like more modern and cinematic almost uh the end of tablet 12 is kind of like that too uh, where mm. it's just there, there's not a whole lot of resolution. It's it, it seems to end quite abruptly when you're reading it, but then uh, when you're done with it, it, it's kind of like you know what that's that's actually a more interesting way for this to wrap up. That's that's sort of intriguing. So mm. yeah, I, I think it's worth it's worthwhile. It's uh, it's an interesting. Okay. Yeah, let, let's uh, yeah let, let, let's get to that because I'm not because ex- one thing I was going to ask you is uh, is it weaker than the rest because uh, tablet twelve uh, from what I read is it was sort of uh, added uh, like much later um, and and you know it it, it kind of made me think like uh, you know is this going to be a sort of you know Ecclesiastes type thing where like the final chapter is just kind of you know, uh, uh, added the end and it feels like it doesn't truly fit. Uh, it, it feels like it's just kind of this, this thing to, to justify, you know, uh, a kind of like more, you know, uh, um, a typically biblical interpretation of, of God and, and spirituality. Um, but yeah, that, that's interesting. We should, we, we should, uh, get to it. Um, after, uh, I mean, let, let's just like, I guess, start then with, with tablet one and, uh, whatever mm-hmm. that we, uh, found, um, in it um so like it, it starts this way right so this is this is how um uh it's differentiated from the old babylonian right the old babylonian has a different starting line and the standard um edition begins he who saw the deep the country's foundation who knew the proper ways was wise in all matters gilgamesh who saw the deep the country's foundation who knew the proper ways was wise in all matters 
He explored everywhere the seats of power. He knew of everything the sum of wisdom. He saw what was secret, discovered what was hidden. He brought back a tale of before the deluge, right? So there, there is a flood myth, right, in, in, in Gilgamesh mm -hmm. uh, and in Sumerian religion in general that we're going to get to, which is almost, almost identical, actually, to uh, the biblical uh, flood myth. Um, and so th this is kind of how it starts, right? It's about a page and a half of really kind of praising Gilgamesh, right? Um, and uh, we have uh, uh, like phrasing like, you know, surpassing all other kings, heroic of stature, brave sign of Uruk, wild bull on the rampage. It starts to then like get into these characterizations that are, you know, a little more kind of like, um, it, it made me wonder, right? like I, I put this in the notes, like, like what is the difference between our interpretation of, of goodness versus greatness? compared to maybe how the ancients saw it compared to how Nietzsche saw it. Like Nietzsche had a much more kind of, you know, a Greek view of, of a, a, a phrase like terrible, right. Mm -hmm. Or a, a Greek view of a phrase like greatness. Um, like even something like, you know, uh, in, in, in history, like Ivan the terrible, right. It, it's not necessarily even that he's just bad, right. A terrible has this kind of you know aspect of uh, of dread to it of, of greatness to it and it's these phrases that are you know um they're a lot more innocuous now right uh and 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 you know nietzsche nietzsche would interpret uh, uh greatness in a different way right it would be very much distinct from personal goodness so you mm -hmm. have you have like these characterizations that are you know um uh uh you know, like a wild bull on the rampage. And it's not simply that, you know, he's like defeating the enemies of Uruk. He's also, you know, uh, uh, in the end, like we, we learned that he's oppressing his own people. Um, so, uh, and just kind of really unexpectedly, uh, you suddenly get uh, this, th this uh, uh, stanza, right? After like a, a page and a half of praise. The young men of Uruk, he harries without warrant. Gilgamesh lets no son go free to his father. By day and by night, his tyranny grows harsher. Gilgamesh, the guide of the teeming people. Um, so here, you know, it's like an objective statement, right? He's still a guide, right, of, of these people, but he's a guide in the context of also being a tyrant, right? So uh -huh. I guess the, the first thing I would ask is like, I, I mean, like, like, did you have any responses to like that aspect of it? Just, just, just the fact that this this like notion of greatness it's so you know it, it's 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 again it's it's very different from like the the average person today uh, how they would interpret uh, uh, such a thing yeah so I, I did and it it is striking to get that immediate juxtaposition um, just briefly in my translation with this the turning phrases where it, we do get some characterization of him as a tyrant, it says, there was no withstanding the aura or power of the wild ox Gilgamesh, neither the father's son, nor the wife of the noble, neither the mother's daughter, nor the warrior's bride was safe. The old men said, is this the shepherd of the people? Is this the wise shepherd, protector of the people? So it, it is striking from that standpoint um, to to hear all these great things and, and this epic characterization of him, but then immediately have some people questioning whether he's really the best one to have at the helm here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I guess when I was first going through and reading it, part of 
of what struck me was, you know, he is characterized as two thirds God, one third man. So uh, some of these acts that he's uh, engaging in and, and the way that he's ruling is pretty similar to a lot of ancient gods and, and mythological gods, right? Where they are, they are a terror mm-hmm. and uh, at their whim, they'll just bring destruction and, and sadness uh, upon lowly humans. So he seems to have like so, this one third human aspect of himself where, um, you know, he, he does have some measure of wisdom and, and he's obviously the one out there doing the building and the envisioning of what Uruk could be. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it, the way that the text sets it up, it seems like the people are grateful for that, right? Mm-hmm. To have this great king who's doing great acts and they want to follow him for that reason. But then at the same time, when he turns around and abuses that power, they're troubled by it. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely, you get the immediate build of him as uh, someone that you're intrigued by to see how his character develops because he does seem great and he's characterized as great in that Nietzschean sense. Um, mm-hmm. but, but you wonder what's going to become uh, of him going and, forward. It's, it's actually a little bit like your translation is a little bit different. Um, uh, you have the people wondering like, is this the person that's supposed to be our King? Uh, and in this tra- translation, it says just as a declarative without any quotation marks, it is he who is shepherd of Uruk, the sheepfold, but Gilgamesh lets no daughter go free to her mother. Uh-huh. He is their herdsman. They are the cows. Their complaint carried up to furthest heaven. Right. So here you just have this kind of declarative um, that this is, in fact, the case. Whereas in your translation, it, it's kind of like people are are, are questioning this. Right. Um, so, yeah. you know, it, it makes me wonder, is this uh, just uh, 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 like like what, what what exactly would the original say in that regard? Um yeah, but yeah. you know, s- soon after that, yeah, we have uh, so the complaints like go up, right? Um, and and uh, 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 oh, well, let me see. Um, and, and also like the, so like the accomplishments, right? That he's sort of being praised for. It makes me wonder. Um, did did they already like come about, right? Because if ultimately he, he uh, concludes that immortality is about doing great things, like is that the thing that spurs him to, you know, like a newfound kind of greatness, you know, by that definition? Or, you know, uh, has he simply been a kind of more, you know, traditional, like not very good king um, that sort of did kind of like a, maybe like some bare minimum thus far, right? Because it seems like so far people, you know, they, they, they fear him more than they respect him. And um, if, if there's uh, not so much respect yet, you know, perhaps uh, what he is truly known for is not yet, like at this point, the text, right? It, it has this kind of interesting set of techniques where, you know, in terms of the plot, like you're sort of starting from the end, right? Because now you already have the wisdom, you already have, you know, uh, the, the objective praise and the objective respect. And yeah. it, we have this like immediate transition to uh, uh, here are Gilgamesh's flaws. Um, and so that that's like a signal that, okay, now we're, we're in the present time. Now we're starting the text with Gilgamesh at the beginning before he ever meets Enkidu, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, that's also kind of interesting way to think about it, right? The, the way that it's moving, you know, through time, uh, again, is a very kind of a modern in, in that regard. Um it is. And one other thing I would highlight, because we're about to talk about the creation of Enkidu by the gods, is 
the the parallels are many with with the Bible or with other ancient texts, but mm -hmm. we'll probably spend a little bit more time talking about the Bible uh, today with some of our other examples. And you in your notes highlighted the Ecclesiastes nature, which of course we have that episode on Ecclesiastes from a while back where it is this, this search for meaning, this search for permanence. Um, and can I accomplish that via, via works? Uh, Gilgamesh seems to, to think so. And, and yet uh, it, it's just interesting that we get these first few pages of a setup where he's here, he's the king, two thirds God, one third man, he's been doing what he's doing. And then the gods decide to create Enkidu to challenge him uh, for whatever set of reasons, right? Maybe we'll talk about that. But it's just interesting to me because the, the Bible straight from the get-go is there's nothing before God. Mm -hmm. In the beginning was God and, and he creates Adam and then subsequently Eve. And so um, even though there are certainly parallels and it's talked about quite a bit in some of the the literature on this, where the creation of Enkidu is kind of a, a precursor to the biblical creation of Adam. Um, this is, it's still pretty different because the set of reasons is, is, is so different. I mean, it's, we need someone to challenge this other person who already exists and has been going about ruling for some time. Um, so, so to me, I mean, I get the parallels, but that's, as I was holding that in my head and reading through this is like, yeah, but this, this is so different. And in a, mm -hmm. again, a way modern, uh, that there's, there's some sort of rationale for the creation mm -hmm. of Enkidu, uh, to challenge this other man who's kind of getting out of hand. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's all, uh, I mean, uh, and just, just to like bring back to Ecclesiastes, uh, I guess we could talk about this a little bit later, but j just in general, um, I, I, I do find it interesting that uh, the the focus again is on things that don't necessarily exist anymore, right? When we're talking about like the great works of Gilgamesh, right? Uh, the building yeah. of cities. I mean, if you if you look up Uruk right now in Wikipedia, you know, it's it's a city in you know of all places Iraq, right? Which is mm -hmm. the name Uruk. Uh, uh, it's a city in, in Iraq. It's 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 been uh, demolished um, uh, mostly, and uh, you know, just like in Ecclesiastes, right there, you know, they're uh, focusing on this idea of like vanity, right? Like all is vanity. M men's work is vanity. But the the thing that Solomon in Ecclesiastes is focused on is like. You know, he hires out, you know, like pop singers to go like sing for him and dancers to sing for him. And he constructs like vineyards and he seems to be like overindulging in, in wine and, and, and drugs and, you know, things that, you know, are, you know, they're, they're more aesthetic than arts related, right? They're more kind of experiential, right? Um, in the sense that, you know, aesthetics is more kind of about ex uh, the experience of art as opposed to art itself. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he, he's, not, he's not so concerned with the arts, which seem to be the only thing uh, that, that really um, uh, stand the test of time, right? Uh, and you have the same thing here. But the irony, of course, is that um, for all the kind of critique you, you might say of Gilgamesh being overly focused on the here and now in terms of like, constructing of like physical structures um the 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 cult that is you know developing around him let's say that he was like really good at what he did and there's and that and that's what justified the subsequent uh, uh cult uh that cult was large enough to eventually create you know a, a work of art that is used to this day right that is referenced that is read that that appears in different ways uh, and inspires uh, like uh, like new new art right uh, mm -hmm. uh new works 
Um, and you know, we have, we have this text before us, right. But we don't have the city, right. Uh, we yep. don't, we don't have much else, but we still always have the text. And, you know, and we said the same thing, uh, when we, uh, discussed Ecclesiastes, right. In the sense that, um, Solomon is so concerned about, uh, all being vanity. And yet, you know, the one thing that he did well ostensibly let's assume the he wrote the book right uh, probably not but mm-hmm. uh you know just just you know th- that's that that's part of the myth right uh the the one thing that he uh does that is not all vanity is is right you know a a a, a book that is now a classic right from the bible and is among one of the best books in the bible right and it's and is still among you know uh the best ancient writing that we have mm-hmm. so yeah yeah exactly so um, I don't think I've got anything else to add there for now. So do we want to move into the creation of Enkidu yeah. here and what transpires? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so like, yeah, well, whatever that you have on that, we could just start with that, I guess. Yeah. Well, let's, let's actually read it in the section that you highlighted because I like the, the phrasing better uh, in the Andrew George interpretation so let's see where that is um oh yeah so let's see we've got page four Mm -hmm. so i I can read it here it says let them summon aruru the great one she it was created them mankind so numerous let her create the equal of gilgamesh one mighty in strength and let him vie with him so uruk may be rested they summon aruru the great one you aruru created mankind now fashion what anu has thought of Page five now. Let him be a match for the storm of his heart. Let them vie with each other so Uruk may be rested. The goddess Ururu heard these words, what Anu had thought of, she fashioned within her. The goddess Ururu, she washed her hands, took a pinch of clay, threw it down in the wild. In the wild, she created Enkidu, the hero, offspring of silence, knit strong by Ninurta. So we can break it off there because then it gets given some, you know, characterization of Enkidu. But um, first of all, what's interesting to note there is is the rep- repetitive language, mm-hmm. which you highlighted in your notes. And I certainly noticed um, upon reading this initially is like there, I mean, we don't need to go into it in too much detail, but it is just interesting how much repetition, I mean, word for word, line for line, there are really big chunks of of the entire book the entire epic that are just copied and pasted basically and repeat repeated so i mean I guess in, the, in the mouths of different characters right which is kind right. of the, the interesting part yeah yeah uh, yeah so i mean i think on the one hand you'd, you'd obviously make like kind of the typical argument that well maybe part of that is just the oral tradition that this existed within so we need you know to, to really drive it home um for any audience that's listening to this, you know, repetition always helps. Uh, but beyond that, like you just said, it, it is kind of an interesting technique to take it and put it in the mouths of these different characters. And so um, it makes you, as a modern reader, I guess, uh, sort of, I don't know, it, it unsettles you in a way because you're like, well, okay, so it's, it's repetition of the exact same lines, but from a different character, different perspective. Like, are they simply agreeing with what was said? Um, are they wanting to, to jump in and almost usurp what was said, um, but but then they don't change it in any way? So that's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on the repetitive nature of the language. Yeah, my, my uh, I mean, my my uh, uh, immediate response was just kind of like, um, you know, 
in this kind of like, like, I guess, metafictional way, we have a narrator, right? We have a writer, uh, and uh, we also have like a set of gods, right? Uh, uh, on the one hand, you know, you have the, you know, the writer that's sort of kind of, you know, setting everybody in this kind of off in the situation where they're doing this repeating, but the gods are often the ones that are doing the repeating too, right? So it's, it's sort of like, you know, uh, people are, are, are compelled, right, to sort of take on the perspectives uh, uh, of the gods, right? Kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not, you know, we're going to get into like this idea of like whether or not the, these gods are, are, are just, right? But there's this kind of, you know, perhaps like a coercive element. Um, but also, again, like just go, just going back, like whether or not the, the writer uh, knew about this, right? Whether or not, you know, uh, Uruk was still like a fully standing city in the way that Gilgamesh ha had uh, constructed it um, or was, you know, already uh, in some form of decay. Uh, the fact is, like, you know, the, the, the book a as it existed, right, as it was constituted, uh, I mean, if this thing was still around, um, uh you know, essentially, it's like it's like the sense that uh, you know, I as a writer, right? Uh, I, I'm able to to do this thing, right? I'm able to uh, have people speak in this way. I, I'm able to put words in others' mouths, right? Uh, I'm able to to uh, uh, do this thing that will outlast, like even you know, Gilgamesh, even even the city. And again, th th this is one of those things where you know, like if 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 uh, uh, Leonard Schlein, right, would be you know using his analysis and applying it to things outside of a uh, visual art, you know, he would say something like, well, you know, this is an example of how uh, art more broadly, right, writing, uh, how it, it could sort of foresee the future, right? It, it could tell you that um, this is what people will be focusing on. This is what they'll be discussing as opposed to, um, you know, kind of like the more kind of superficial elements of day-to-day of -day existence, which, you know, the construction of buildings, even if they're, you know, huge and imposing, right, that, that it would fall under a more kind of prosaic reality, whereas writing is not. Um, so, that that's sort of my uh, my take on on the kind of repetition that we see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. And then you in in your notes highlighted what else did you say about uh, Enkidu with his his description? So offspring of silence. Yeah, yeah, um, and and, yeah, and yeah. that phrase, which which is definitely uh, poetic and interesting. Um, I guess reading it. So it's, that's that's a much better phrasing, I think, than anything I've got in my translation. So let's go with that. Um, you know, I think that where where my mind went first was uh, the the spectral world or the world of the gods. You know, is that being characterized as some way uh, a place of silence, uh, a mm -hmm. land of silence? You know, which would be sort of interesting because in a lot of mythology and and even in in Gilgamesh at certain points, it's the, the world of the gods seems much more cacophonous, right? It's argumentative. Mm -hmm. It's, it's embattled. It's petty. There's all these things that go on that are just uh, kind of people revenging personal affronts and whatever. Uh, but, but to having Kidu be an offspring of silence and maybe also um, therefore, if he's supposed to be the equal of Gilgamesh, there must be some kind of power to silence, mm -hmm. right? If, if he's an offspring of something, and he's meant to challenge the greatest living man god of the time. Uh, what does that say about silence it, itself? So, and also just interesting to say offspring of silence rather than offspring of these two gods um, mm -hmm. or goddesses. So, yeah, um, really, really striking line there. Um, 
And, what other, what other yeah, takes do you have on that? Yeah. What I would add to that is, um, so, uh, you know, like you often get like in various like religious tra- traditions, th- this idea of like, you know, some kind of void, right. Before, yeah. before, before creation. Um, and on, and then also on the other hand, uh, you know, Enkidu is supposed to represent this kind of wild man, right. This mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, like, like, like cropping up, you know, in the wilds and, you know, being attuned to such and eventually sort of, you know, molting, you know, that, that part of himself a little bit, um, when he, when he enters into a society at large, um, but when you think of like, uh, this, this, this idea of like characters, being presented as a kind of like, you know, noble savage in some ways, like uh, there, there is oftentimes like a pejorative element to instinct, right. To being like, you know, like a deaf and dumb youth, right. If you, for example, have no language, you know, like as mm-hmm. a wild person or a wild animal, but by characterizing Enkidu as like an, as the offspring of silence, j- just, just by, you know, poeticizing that kind of phrase, right. And, and by, going away from the more kind of predictable, you know, a uh, deaf, dumb, you type thing, uh, uh, th- that pejorative sense just kind of disappears, right? J- just by the nature of just introducing poetry into it, right? So, um, and you know, it's it's it, it also sets the stage for the fact that he it, he does you know become a character of, of depth, right? He's not just mm-hmm. a beast, right? He's and he's not just there to be you know like uh, a a you know uh, Rousseauan sort of you know noble savage, right? Um, yeah. So even even his later uh, role as the interpreter of dreams, it made me think about that, right? Because Gilgamesh oh, yeah, that, that's has, interesting. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Gilgamesh has these dreams, and it's it's Enkidu who steps in and and interprets them for him. And so um, when I was reading through those sections, it was making me reflect back to this whole idea of the offspring mm-hmm. of silence and maybe the like you said, the void or the dream world or the the land of imagination where you mm-hmm. must create something out of nothing um and and dreams are i guess they are and aren't that way uh both whatever we don't need to get to you know too far of digression there at this moment but um anyway yeah just really good bit of characterization and and so i think that um it's important you know for any anyone watching who you know whether you're really experienced with reading poetry and maybe writing it or not like this is the kind of stuff poetry can do Right. Mm-hmm. This is the power of, of a few words or one line to show up and immediately cast the rest of what comes after in a, a different or a multiple, uh, you know, multiple kinds of meaning and light. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. in, really interesting little pivot moment there in the creation of Enkidu. Yeah. Um, and, and just a, a quick uh, note, uh, j- just so that uh, we could remember to go back to it. So like when the dream sequences start, you know, it makes me wonder whether or not this is an, an, an implicit criticism, right, of, you know, uh, a person of the wilds, right, sort of being this figure that wants to step inside the imagination and, and uh, interpret, for example, dreams, because, you know, you, you're just wondering whether or not these interpretations are just kind of, uh, they're they're kind of there, right? In a kind of self-serving fashion, right? They're they're mm-hmm. there to kind of like overread, you know, uh, uh, positive things, right? Into something that ultimately, right? Ultimately, uh, it, you know, comes out in negative fashion. If you want to interpret Enkidu's uh, death, right? Condemnation to die uh, as negative. 
Um, but uh, yeah, b- before we even get, get to that part. Uh, so uh, in Kido's fashion in this way, uh, there's like a, a trapper that um, is, is afraid of him, right? And, and anybody that, that approaches him seems to be afraid of him. Uh, so uh, th- the question becomes like h- how, you know, how can this person be civilized? Because ultimately uh, the trapper's uh, complaints about Enkidu do- does uh, make its way to Gilgamesh, right? So, and th- the fact that Gilgamesh feels compelled to respond to the trapper and uh, give him like a-, a way to, you know, essentially like, you know, uh, uh, either civilizing Keto or, or neutralize uh, the threat that he has to his livelihood. Um, it seems as if like, even at that point, Gilgamesh is, even if he's like a tyrant, he does seem to be a little bit attuned, attuned at least to, you know, the needs of his people, right? Here is an individual hunter um, who has this problem, right? In relation to his like day-to-day work. And Gilgamesh says, okay, for, for this to improve, you need to get the uh, town prostitute Shamhat and uh, uh, bring her over. And uh, when she, if she sleeps with Enkidu, that could civilize him and he could be sort of, you know, brought to the fold, right? He could be brought into your fold and he could be, um, you know, become a part of society as opposed to being this, you know, a uh, scary figure that's just this kind of interference. Um, and, and and to me, I mean, uh, sh- uh, the, the prostitute Shamhat is, uh, she's, she's a very interesting character because she's never allowed to be like, like, the, like and th- this kind of surprised me, I think most of all, uh, she never is like denigrated in the text, right? Like normally right. when you see like prostitutes appear in uh, a- ancient writing, uh that's considered like, you know, an ultimate negative. And I mean, objectively probably was, right? I, I you know, for all the kind of uh, uh, negative experiences the prostitutes have today, I'm sure it might've been, you know, a, a thousand times worse, right? Uh, years and years ago, but she's never presented as like, you know, a fallen woman, right? right. She's never presented as in any way kind of immoral. Um, in fact, you know, near the end of the text when Enkidu is, uh, is uh, uh, dying, he uh, damns, uh, Shamhat for civilizing him and bringing him into the into this you know new world, and he he gets reproached for that you know by, by like a goddess and says like why why would you ever you know uh, condemn this woman that gave you such wonderful things like in life right um and for, like from the beginning like she's treated with a lot of respect you know which is interesting uh she she does play the kind of more kind of i'm not sure if i'd call a stereotype but definitely kind of like a bit of a stock role in the sense that you know she's there to like civilize you know uh man right mm-hmm. uh and you and you kind of like uh, uh the reason why i don't, I don't want to truly call a stereotype is i mean there is some reality there right in, in the sense that um, uh, uh, you know, you know, one of the best checks on male power is, is uh, uh, female power, right? And you know, it, 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 to the modern person, you know, that that's kind of stuck on kind of very modern interpretations of feminism. This might sound kind of crazy, but I mean, that's just kind of reality, right? Uh, China used to have, you know, the, these uh, male riots uh, from men who were just so, you know, that th- they would outnumber women so much. 
that, um, uh, you know, they felt like, I, I, you know, I can't have mates here. This is a problem. And there would be, you know, th these riots related to the fact that, you know, uh, th there's nothing to placate them. Right. So uh -huh. um, we know that, you know, anthropologically, this this is kind of reality. Right. Like uh, men who do not have access to women. This causes a kind of, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of like, you know, violent dissolution in society in the same way that women, you know, not having access to men. It's not like a violent dissolution, but it's a dissolution of a different sort. Right. It's just uh -huh. that, you know, male versus female kind of, you know, uh, if you want to interpret things a little bit biologically, you know, whatever the imperatives are, you know, they, they lead to, you know, both the same kind of negative conclusion um, in that way. And, and Shamha, she, she's she's made to play this kind of role. Uh, but, uh, it, it's, it's never done in a way that's kind of, it's never overdone, right? It's never, it's never truly like a, a negative thing. Um, and she, she, she's always treated with a lot of respect. And the one, the one time when she's being damned, right. You know, uh, 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 literally like a goddess intervenes and says, you, you cannot say this, this is not rational and this is not fair. And this does not take into consideration everything that she was able to do for you. Yeah, that's that's all true and uh, and well pointed out. I think another interesting parallel to make here is uh, again, if we're going to look at the Bible and the creation of Enkidu being some kind of parallel for the creation of Adam, and then as opposed to um, you know the story of Adam and Eve, where then Eve gets created out of Adam's rib and more earth. Uh, you know, Shemhat is, is already. She already exists. She's already there. She's in your rook and she's commanded to go, you know, see Enkidu and, um, and, and civilize him and sleep with him. And, and my, the way my text phrases it is show him what a woman can do, I think. And so, you know, all of that happens and plays out. And then, like you said, she's never, uh, you know, she's never really ridiculed yet in the Bible where we have Eve created out of a part of Adam she's the one who first takes the temptation from the serpent. And then for forever after, you know, Eve is really characterized as the one who sort of it's, it's her fault really that then Adam, you know, um, also ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and the downfall of all of humanity and the sinful nature of it kind of thing. So, um, you know, the, this, this woman, in the Bible who is created in a pure way without being a prostitute, without any kind of, you know, prior set of conduct to judge her on immediately goes and, you know, and has this, this moment with the serpent and it's kind of in a way her fault forever after. Whereas here, you know, Shamhat who could have been in some way, uh, you know, looked down upon as a prostitute for the things that she's, you know, been doing or the, the role she's had in society in the past, um, you know, has kind of this moment of, uh, a real positivity in a way where she goes out and, and plays an important role for the whole rest of the story and is never, um, ridiculed for it. So, uh, yeah, just, just something I noticed reading yeah. through. Uh, and also just uh, reading this uh, now, um, it just made me kind of uh, like to, to go back to, to the Eve uh, story. Um, I, I, I can see exactly why, right? The Eve story uh, is typically interpreted as, you know, this kind of, you know, uh, anti-feminist thing, right? Um, you know, this, this damnation of a woman and, you know, woman damning everyone else uh, for, you know, her own kind of like, you know, you know, curiosity and her own kind of, you know, uh, manipulativeness. But 
at the same time, like uh, w when when I see uh, um, you know Ikudu dying and he and he's like you know trying to damn Shamhat, um, it, it it made me think like in relation to Eve, uh, maybe a Christian might interpret the story in such a way, but you know I I wonder to what extent like can we really damn. Uh, Eve as like just 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 by the text alone, right? I mean, so you know when when uh, Inkidu ends up uh, complaining about like you know this is what you did to me, you know you brought me into society for no reason. I could have just been with my flocks forever, and I would have still been alive. Um, but uh, what the goddess ends up telling him is, well, she brought you into civilization, like she brought you into knowledge, like you know, uh, mm -hmm. she, she brought you into real understanding. And even if you know you have to ultimately sacrifice your life for it eventually, isn't there like a kind of like you know, greater than? Isn't there like you know, a, a greatness to being able to have knowledge, being able to have this kind of newfound wisdom, being able to understand what society is and engage with it and 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 do something in this context as opposed to just being essentially you know, more robot like? Because you know, the more kind of the lower that we go into this kind of you know, uh, animal kingdom, right? The more robotic you know, uh, animals are. Human yeah. beings, uh, even if they're kind of you know, robotic. In, in, in many senses, they definitely have less of a kind of, you know, a robotic bottom line in some ways, at least. And, um, you know, uh, e, I, I think like in the context of, of Gilgamesh, which is why this is kind of so interesting to, compl to compare to the Bible, um, in the context of, of, of Gilgamesh, uh, it does seem to me that, that Eve does fulfill a similar kind of function as Shamhad, which is she introduces Adam to you know, actual knowledge, the, the actual meaning of being a person, right? Of being mm -hmm. a human being. And it's true that, you know, being a human being comes with so much suffering and so many negatives. But uh, I, you know, I, I wonder, uh, you know, is that is that really worse than uh, a situation where you're kind of like just, you know, essentially a, a faultless animal that can do no wrong because God sort of, you know, uh, engendered this kind of machine and set it rolling without any kind of input from you. And uh, now mm -hmm. you have like some control and, and now you have the ability to, you know, construct things that are like objectively there. You could actually construct a society. You could actually engage in the arts. You could actually deal with things like, you know, sadness and, and the human condition that is not available to you, uh, you know, otherwise. And, you know, mortality itself um, uh, gives you a sense of purpose and a sense of, you know, I, I, I must do certain things and I must avoid others, right? The, 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 the line from um, uh, 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 the, um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, I forget which Chinese text that has this, but you know, you must stop wasting time in distant lands, right? Uh, uh, you know, so so it, it seems to me like there's definitely many interpretations of Eve, you know, through the lens of Gilgamesh that that would make you make it seem as if like this is not the negative that is portrayed to be, as long as you are okay with like being a human being, right? Like if you want something else for you, right. fine, fine. But uh, if you're actually okay with being a person and you're not pining for, you know, just a pure animal kingdom, you know, um, just just like Shamhat, you know, uh, Eve in some ways uh, creates a, a service, right? For the world that God ironically is not able to, to do for people, right? Himself. Right. Well, and one final thought there before we move on is just that, um, the other key difference is 
in the Bible, this effort to know is viewed as evil, yeah. right? It's portrayed as a sin and it's a problem and you were trying to get on God's level mm-hmm. uh, and therefore you must be punished for that. Um, I'll give you what you want. I'll, you know, now you'll have all this knowledge of good and evil, which will bring you suffering and pain and difficulty and childbearing and the earth won't yield crops for you. And, and mm-hmm. you know, all, all these kind of things that happen as a knock-on effect uh, in the Bible. Whereas here it's like, you know, if Enkidu enters into society, um, it's 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 more positive he's not trying to be a god he's just trying to go live where people live and see you know do what people do rather than mm-hmm. uh, you know exist as like you said kind of an, an uh, r- robotic instinctual only uh, animal type existence mm-hmm. so anyway um now you know they, they he goes to Uruk with Shamhat and and wrestles with Gilgamesh and uh, things transpire from there so you want to jump to that yeah, so I mean, is there like anything else in uh, Tablet One? Um, oh, I, 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 I well, um, just to get back to like this kind of like idea of Christian morality, um, there, there is this kind of a part in Gilgamesh where um, Enkidu, but by having sex, sex with Shamhat, like you know, the animals are no longer trusting of him, right? They run away. He, he loses power, right? Yeah. Uh, he, he's he's less physically imposing. It makes me wonder, like, if he were to fight Gilgamesh in his uh, former state, you know, would he have won? My guess is he he very well uh, could have. Uh, but now, uh, you know, he he's kind of like molting the, 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 this, uh, the skin. And um, uh, it, the text, like, phrases it as he defiles himself, right, by having sex. Not mm-hmm. by having sex with the prostitute but just by you know the the action of sex right so uh there there is like still this kind of like uh sense but you know uh the the, the this defilement is not even um uh, you know it, it's hard to say to what degree these are truly moral terms versus like you know are we just doing this kind of like objective thing of uh you know greatness versus something you know lesser than greatness where you know now you know Inkadu is is less uh you know his 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 less he's less fast right he he's physically weaker um so uh and again just just kind of like the irony that Gilgamesh is the one that ultimately you know through kind of like no you know, it's almost as if like the gods knew, right? That if we if we create this Enkidu, who's going to create some kind of you know problem for the society, right? Where a trapper is not able to make his living anymore, Gilgamesh, being Gilgamesh, will be compelled to civilize Enkidu, right? And ultimately force Enkidu to into a meeting with him, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's almost as if like you know it was written, right? It was uh, preordained in some ways. Um, and also, uh, Gilgamesh, uh, uh, like, let's just, uh, read some of this, uh, um, uh, stuff like, so, so Gilgamesh, uh, after Enkidu is, is constructed, uh, he has, he has, you know, he has dreams as well, right? He has dreams of, of, uh, Enkidu, right? So when he speaks to his uh, divine mother, um, uh, the, 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 this, this is, this is the way that this is, uh, uh, described, uh, the stars of the heavens appeared above me like a rock from the sky. One fell down before me. I lifted it up, but it weighed too much for me. I tried to roll it, but it could not dislodge it. So this is the nightmare that he's having, right? That this rock falls down and he can't, he can't, he does not have the strength to move it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And this is supposed to be uh, in Kidu. Uh The land of Uruk was standing around it. 
The people were gathered about it. A crowd was milling about before it. The menfolk were thronging around it. Like a babe in arms, they were kissing its feet. Like a wife, I loved it, caressed and embraced it. I lifted it up, set it down at your feet, and you, O oh mother, you made it my equal. And this is Shamhat quoting to Enkidu, uh, the, the dream that Gilgamesh is relating to his mother, right? And I, I found that part kind of interesting, right? How it's kind of like, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, you know, like like a wife, I embrace it, right? Um, there's this kind of, uh, you know, like oftentimes you get this kind of love relationship between the two that, you know, I, I don't want to do this like modern, like overly modern thing where like, you know, like a lot of like modern reading, readings have tried to like sexualize it and turn it into like a, you know, like a gay love affair. I, I don't think it's that, but, you know, yeah. it, like it, it is an objective fact that the, the Inkiru is often like, and Gilgamesh, it's often just like characterized as the love between a husband and a wife, right? And between a man and a woman, right? Um, and, you know, that that was uh, whether or not this is just kind of like basic poetic hyperbole or something else, um, you know, it, it is there, right? It, and it is there to, to be talked about in some way. Um, so, so ultimately, you know, the, these dreams are there, are there and uh, 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 Gilgamesh uh, uh, comes to meet Enkidu, who is kind of, you know, let loose essentially uh, into the, um, uh, into the city of uh, Uruk. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you want to take it from there. So we would be on tablet two now. Yep. Um, so I think the main thing I wanted to read right at the beginning of tablet two is just a final couple lines that for me emphasized what we were talking about with Shamhat earlier and her characterization as, um, not belittled and not mm -hmm. evil. So this is the beginning of my translation of tablet two. Shamhat took off her robe and divided it so that the wild man also could be clothed. When this was done and both of them were clothed, she took him by the hand as a goddess might, leading a worshiper into the temple precinct. As if he was a child, she held his hand and they began their journey. So just those first few lines there, you know, first like her, uh, her charity in a way to take her clothing and give him part of it. And then uh, took him by the hand as a goddess might, you know, it's like mm -hmm. really kind of elevating her in a way yeah. uh, with, with that language. And I thought it was an interesting line leading as a goddess might leading a worshiper into the temple precinct as if he was a child. She mm -hmm. held his hand. So this, this beast like being that's been created by the gods and she sort of, you know, we know, we know that the whole end of tablet one is kind of like her taming of him or whatever, but now he's all of a sudden a, a child mm -hmm. uh, or childlike um, and kind of needs her in a way to, to help him along into uh, civilized society. And, uh, and this kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, from there, I, I don't know how much you want to read directly. It's like, you know, everyone in Uruk is really amazed by Enkidu and he's huge and like, oh, maybe he and Gilgamesh, uh, you know, should, uh, should battle it out bare chested or whatever. Yeah. Uh, b besides that, I mean, there's also like a later point where she actually, like she physically sits him down. Right. And she, she's feeding him. Right. Like, or, or rather she, uh -huh. you know, like the bread and the wine is, is said before him and he's not, you know, he's not able to eat or drink because, you know, and in my text, it's like, he looks askance, right. He doesn't know what to do with this stuff. Um, uh -huh. And, uh, you know, after she teaches him that this is in fact, what human beings do, right. We, we eat food and, and, and we drink wine. Um, uh, 
near near the end, right when he learns of the fact that so, like you know, uh, Gilgamesh in in in, in the story, um, you know, he he, he sleeps with. Uh, the uh, brides of, of uh, husbands, right? Uh, before before they get to sleep uh, with their own brides. Uh, and in Kido, upon hearing this, he he seems to get very angry, right? Like, th- like why, you know, why is this happening? There's some there's something very unjust here. And he seems to not know much about society, right? He doesn't even know how to eat and drink, but uh, just there's something innately about this this thing that uh, most people recognize as wrong, mm-hmm. um, that that he knows is wrong as well, right? And and you know, I'm just wondering if you had like any thoughts about that. This kind of like you know innate sense of like natural rights, right? How, how much of this uh, uh, comes from, you know, the the society kind of superimposing this upon Enkidu, right? That the writer kind of like putting uh, these uh, thoughts into his head, versus. You know how much of this is a kind of like meditation on you know whatever uh, the feelings might have been on you know they didn't have the phrase natural rights but clearly they they had a thought right they they, they had a thought of like uh, some kind of like preordained rights um, that that everyone had. Yeah, um, I don't think I thought about it a ton as I was reading through. You know, your your notes about it were maybe among the first uh, th- that made me ponder it. Um, so, so potentially there is that going on here with some kind of, uh, you know, na- idea of natural rights or even moralizing to a certain extent. Um, to me, again, maybe one of the most interesting things is that this is coming from, um, coming from a fellow human being, at least of a sort, you know, in Kidu to Gilgamesh, or, or at least in his mind is thinking, you know, that's not right. Whereas if you look at, uh, again, you know, the Bible, maybe any kind of sense that, someone taking, you know, multiple wives or like my, my mind went to the story of David with Bathsheba, right. Mm-hmm. Where, um, you know, he, he takes her as his own and like, then he ends up in this, uh, quandary where he has to kill her husband by putting him on the front lines of a battle so that he dies and he can sort of get away with it, but then he feels guilty over it. But you get the sense that all of that comes either from him internally or from God, uh, you know, kind of like, I don't know, co- coaxing, coaxing mm-hmm. that out of him. Um, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, like David goes on and he keeps Bathsheba for a wife and he sort of, uh, I don't know, con- continues on and in, in this vein and whatever. And uh, once Enkidu and, and Gilgamesh end up brawling, uh, f- you know, for whatever set of reasons, whether it's simply just a, a you know, this desire to have a, a showdown and see who's stronger, or maybe Enkidu is harboring some kind of like negative feelings toward Gilgamesh and like, well, I need to, I need to show him, you know, what he's doing isn't right. And I'm the only one who can really stop him or a combination of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact is, you know, once this goes on, the whole trajectory of the text changes. And now the two of them start to focus on like external things and other, other mm-hmm ventures they could take on together um and so in a way it like does change gilgamesh for the better you know he begins to cast his gaze out toward bigger broader things potentially mm-hmm. now he's he's still selfish in his motives right he thinks to himself if I, if we go battle humbaba uh whether i lose or win i'm going down in in, in the history books right mm-hmm. uh, people are going to remember me so there's still that but um but that was my main set of thoughts is like again this this idea of morality may be coming from another somewhat equal being rather than from above with mm-hmm. the gods. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, one thing I want to ask uh, before we finish. Uh, so, so Tablet Two ends with um, uh, the two of them. So, uh, Inkidu confronts uh, Gilgamesh about this, you know, th- this practice that he's engaged in. They fight. Uh, Gilgamesh wins, and um, but they they become friends. Uh, b- based on the notes that you sent me, though, it, it seems as if your text uh, paints Inkidu as the one that is like very enthusiastic about. Uh, going out uh, into the cedar forest to fight uh, Humbaba, whereas in my text, uh, Gilgamesh is the one that goads Enkidu on, um, and and Enkidu is the one that that says, uh, "Listen, um, you know, you may want to do this, but you know, I I I, I know who this creature is, and uh, he he might be too ferocious even for us, right? And and um, uh, 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 even before, like you know, Enkidu is kind of like saying like. You know, I uh, there, there's this kind of like terror that you know that enters him as if he knows that Gilgamesh is going to ask this thing, right? And you know, as if like it's going to set this uh, chain of events that ultimately ends with Enkidu dying, right? After the, the bull of heaven is uh, is slain, um, like so, like in your text, is it is it Enkidu that is the one that is like enthusiastic about going into the cedar forest or or what? At least in Tablet Two, because th- that sort of changes uh, later on. Yeah. Um... No, that is interesting because now I didn't notice this on the first go round, but I'm I'm on the Andrew George translation where it says Gilgamesh opened his mouth saying to Enkidu, ferocious Umbaba, let us slay him so his power is no more. And mm-hmm. yeah, in my text, um, you know, right before it says Enkidu and Gilgamesh embraced and kissed and took each other by the hand and then skipping down, Enkidu spoke these words to Gilgamesh, Umbaba's mouth is fire, his roar the flood water, his breath is death. Enlil made him guardian of the cedar forest to frighten off the mortal mm-hmm. who would venture there, but who would venture there? His mouth is fiery. There's this like repetition again. Um, helpless is he who enters the cedar forest, but Gilgamesh replied, who is the mortal able to enter heaven? Only the gods can live forever. The life of man is short. What he accomplishes is but the wind. Very Ecclesiastian again mm-hmm. there. Um, where is the courage that you used to have? Where is the strength? It is Gilgamesh who will venture first into the cedar forest, and you can follow after, crying mm-hmm. out, go on, go forward, go on, embrace the danger. You who mm-hmm. have fought with lions and wolves, you know what danger is. Where is your courage? If I yeah. should fall, my fame will be secure. It was Gilgamesh who fought against Zimbabwe. So, um yeah, it, it, it's still kind of Gilgamesh who really posits, you know, like, let's actually go do this. But it, in my version, it is Enkidu who first even brings up mm-hmm. Baba. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess we could. Uh, th- this immediately brings us to Tablet 3. And uh, th- this to me was like part of the characterization, right? So like... Uh, tablet two, uh, Gilgamesh, uh, you know, maybe he, he has like a bunch of testosterone running after winning this fight <laughs> against, you know, this guy that everybody, you know, is, is so curious about and seems so powerful. Yeah. Uh, but as tablet three starts and he's, he still seems to be like off of this kind of high, um, as you know as the text goes on though uh it's really gilgamesh is the one that becomes fearful right Right. he's the one that becomes uncertain in the face of humbaba and ultimately when when they actually have him you know uh at a place where they're they're able to uh uh, kill humbaba uh has to keep telling him over and over again 
stop being manipulated by Humbaba. He's just saying these different things to you because, um, you know, uh, he wants you to spare his life and then he's going to kill you. So let's just kill him and get it over with. Right. So, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's this kind of interesting inversion where, you know, Gilgamesh is the one that becomes frightened uh, and uncertain. And Enkidu is the one that has to be, you know, like, like earlier on, like in tablet two, or maybe it's tablet one, uh, Enkidu is also characterized as the savior of Gilgamesh, right? And that's kind of an interesting phrase to use, right? I mean, it's kind of like savior in what sense? Well, in the physical sense of like, he seems to have saved uh, Gilgamesh's life um, it, it, uh, in, in terms of like not, you know, uh, falling prey to, to Humbaba's like wiles. But mm -hmm. also he becomes like, you know, in a spiritual sense, a savior in terms of just giving him a greater purpose and direction that goes beyond you know, uh, personal fame or just, you know, personal like overindulgence in, in, in whatever, right. That he seems to be interested in before meet, meeting in Kiru. But uh, again, like just back to the characterization, like so far, like we get a, a whole lot of stuff, you know, in, in the kind of the internal movements of these characters that, you know, you're not going to get in, in like the first, you know, you know, few pages or the first few chapters of the Odyssey of the Iliad, which is like really why, like I even prefer, like you know, I've always preferred, um, you know, uh, the Aeneid to like uh, the the Greek uh, epics, you know, simply because like you know the Aeneid sort of starts with, you know, the, the, this person that se that seems to be like a villain but is not, right? It's kind of like this this mm. antihero that is, you know, like it's almost you know it's it's, it's almost as if uh, uh, the Aeneid is. Uh, making a comment on um, like 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 Roman imperialism, right? And, and the fact that <laughs> like everybody wants their own state and their own people. Everybody, everybody, you know, every person, every people has a nationalism within it, right? So to say that you know Rome deserves this, whereas like you know uh, the the Etruscans or whoever else do not. It's just you know it's it, it goes against actual experience and uh what ought to be human empathy and um we don't get so much of that in 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 the greek tragedies and we get a lot more of this even even in gilgamesh than, than most of these texts so um yeah. yeah i'm not sure if you have anything to say about like the the, the next few tablets They're, they they all kind of like come together kind of quickly right uh it's like it's like it's like three tablets that are uh all kind of around um uh, confronting humbaba and uh, you know their thoughts in the process, right? And the dreams that they have um, in the process, right? Yeah, that's just it. Um, I'll just read a couple interesting lines in my translation. So this is uh, you know not too far into Tablet Four, and they're mm -hmm. venturing on. They're covering a lot of ground every day. Um, you know, godlike levels of ground, right? Um, you know, and, and there's comparisons in the text between what an ordinary person would do versus how much they do mm -hmm. so an, an elevation of them which which we kind of expect um but then there's this line there's a series of lines that says after a time the oblivion of sleep poured in upon the king the strongest of all he slept but at midnight suddenly awoke and awakened the companion in kidu did you call out to me just now in the night why did i awaken was it you that touched me was it a god went through the camp a dream? What makes my skin creep? I had a dream. I dreamed we were going through a mountain gorge and a huge mountain fell down on the two of us. We were as little as flies compared to the mountain. 
so just some interesting phrasing there um and, and the fact that like he's so confused you know when he first wakes up and then it kind of goes into enkidu you know interpreting the dream in a positive way mm-hmm. uh and whatever but uh but just i just thought that was some you know interesting poetic writing um in my translation at least and then uh kind of moving along when th- they're about to get to the cedar forest um, there's this section in, in my translation that says there was a noise in the sky that spoke and said, seven terrors are the garments of Humbaba. The aura of Humbaba is the terrors. Helpless is he who enters the cedar forest when the demon wears the seven. Hurry, Humbaba has not put on the seven. He wears but one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we don't know for sure that this is a god or a goddess that's, uh, you know, giving them this tip, but I guess we can assume it. I mean, it's just a noise in the sky that spoke. Um, so maybe it's one of their, you know, parents or just someone else from the, the realm of the gods. Um, but, but again, it kind of reminded me of, um, that offspring of silence line from mm-hmm. earlier, right. Where like, once again, it's, it's like in here and then just out of nowhere, there's a noise in the sky that, that speaks to them and gives them some kind of tip. It says like, Hey, go now do this now, if you're going to win, um, so it's just another interesting extension of that prior characterization. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, some of these like individual dreams, right? So he has like, a, I think a total of, of four dreams. Um, and uh, one thing that struck me is just how kind of like, no matter what the dream was, right? Whether it's like, you know, a, a mountain, right? In your translation, it says that they were like flies next to the mountain, which seems to have like a negative connotation. Whereas in my translation, it's uh, we as flies like flew clean over it. But mm-hmm. no matter how kind of like um, a negative the dream sounds, Enkidu always comes back with, you know, what are you so scared of? This is actually a uh, positive, right? And he always puts a positive spin on the dream. So uh, like so far, it, uh, it's as if, you know, Enkidu is kind of like a little bit of a, I don't want to call him like a perfect character this far, but there's definitely much more so this feeling of he's the guide, right? He's going to be the one that um, uh, prevents uh, uh, Gilgamesh from doing all these bad things, which, you know, in some ways it's true. But here, you know, his like, like his, his enthusiasm in, in, in uh, interpreting these dreams and the way that he interprets them. Uh, it's, you know, it's almost as if um, it's, it's just wishful thinking. Right. So uh, yeah. like the first like flaws of, of, of Enkidu uh, come out and it, uh, the dynamic is especially good, right. In terms of like structure and poetry, because on the one hand, um, well, well, first of all, like the characterization, right? This overenthusiasm, you, you start wondering like, okay, you know, what is this about? Is this really an overenthusiasm? You know, does he truly, you know, feel this way about the dreams? Is this like, does this say something bad about this character? You have that. Uh, on the other hand, though, um, uh, they, they do ultimately, as we come to see, they do, you know, uh, defeat Humbaba, right? So they do win. So it's as if like Enkidu's uh, interpretations are vindicated and Gilgamesh's fears are, um, you know, shown to be wrong. Uh, but also, 
you know, uh, uh, this is again, this this is a series of events that ultimately ends with uh, the Bull of Heaven being uh, uh, slain later on, and uh, and Kido has to be killed for it, you know, by the gods. And um, so uh, th this this like idea of the overenthusiasm, uh, it's still there, right? We, we we don't eliminate it simply by you know uh, the two heroes defeating Humbaba, like on the right. surface. Inkiru is vindicated, but, you know, digging deeper, you know, th there's other functions here going on. And again, you know, very different from most ancient poetry. Um, so uh, that, that, those are my, I'm not sure if you had anything else to, to add about uh, those, those dreams uh, or, or what. Um, yeah. My other comment uh, in my notes to you was, was that um, it's exactly it. You know, there's like this Pollyanna feeling to Enkidu and, and part of you wonders like, is there some ulterior motive here? Like, is, does he want this to keep going? Because, you know, he's the one that was born in the wilds and presumably knows more, but also maybe, you know, he lost to Gilgamesh early on um, in kind of a more typical ancient writing or poetry. You might be thinking like, does he have a vendetta, right? Is he like somehow uh, like in cahoots with Umbaba at the end of the day to make sure that Gilgamesh gets killed mm -hmm. in the midst of this battle and, and he can assume power or something, but it's, it's not, it's not that trite and it's not that direct. It, it really yeah. is kind of interesting that he's just more like, no, like together, let's go on and do this. Here's what I think that dream means. And of course the Gilgamesh just listens and is like, yeah, 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 yeah you're probably right. Let's, uh, yeah. let's get in there. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, and, and like wield our axes and whatever. But um the, the the thing that struck me though is I know I keep coming back to it, but like you know referencing the Bible in my head, um, the the interpretation of dreams in, in the Bible and maybe other uh, religious traditions by their prophets is much more varied, right? Some of them are are seen positively and like okay that's that's a sign from God that uh, we will be prosperous or we will uh, we'll make it through the wilderness and and we'll be blessed and. Uh, whatever and at other times it's like no that's uh, that's obviously a sign that uh, this particular people group or we will be visited by terror and plague and there will be problems and you know mm -hmm. so and so has disobeyed god's will and so there must be punishment and recompense uh, someone has to pay uh this particular venture won't be successful you know you name it so so there's a there's a lot of both uh whereas here it's just interesting that it's like every time uh, viewed in a positive way. And even, you know, uh, Gilgamesh's mother back at, when there was that dream eventually was like, no, you know, there'll be one who comes to you as a companion mm -hmm. um, instead of, you know, oh, so someone's going to rise up to challenge you. This could be a negative thing, right? So every time it gets a positive spin um, and, and like it, I mean, it pushes the narrative along, right? It'd be like, it'd be weird if they just decided to stop this, uh, journey like right on the edge of the cedar forest and not go battle humbaba right it wouldn't be much of an epic poem i guess uh, if they didn't yeah but anyway um that's where my mind went was like the the relentless positivity is just sort of different and interesting well, one thing that i was wondering about um humbaba is uh you know we have like all these like character inversions right where uh gilgamesh seems to be the one that's brave but you know clearly by the time that we get to fighting humbaba he's you know he has to be convinced by enkidu that you know defeat him right st stop paying attention to the manipulations um 
Uh, so since we have like all these various inversions and all these like unexpected little tropes uh, cropping up in Gilgamesh, you know, I was trying to find a way to read um, Humbaba himself, right? To, to see whether or not there's any inversions in his character or whether, you know, like, is he just like some sort of, uh, I don't want to use the word evil, but some sort of like nefarious agent, just like, you know, a bad giant that, um, you know, they, they, they have to fight anyway, or, um, you know, like, is, 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 is there something like positive about him? Like, th th does he, like, he does say at a certain point that, Hey, you know, in Inkitu, you're, you're actually betraying me. Right. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, but what would be the nature of this betrayal? Like, it seems like they, like he was aware of Humbaba before, um, uh, the fight begins before they confront him. But, um, you know, uh, I, you know, perhaps I'm just kind of like, uh, looking for too much now because when I, you know, when I was looking up various like interpretations and seeing what people had to say, I, I can't really find anything that strikes me as, you know, Humbaba is kind of like, um, you know, uh, uh n not as evil as he's made out to be, uh, the, the only thing I could say is that, uh, near the end when they in fact, uh, defeat Humbaba, uh, there is an interesting part where Enkidu starts to chide uh, Gilgamesh once more, right? So he chides him about wanting to confront Humbaba, so he's too powerful. And then he chides him about uh, being too fearful of Humbaba when they have the when Gilgamesh has the various dreams. Mm -hmm. And uh, he chides him again when you know he's uh, about to kill Humbaba and Gilgamesh hesitates multiple times. And then the last uh, chiding in tablet, five um is or or uh, yeah tablet five is so a so after they, they slay humbaba uh, uh the way that my translation frames it is gilgamesh went trampling through the forest to take resin from the cedars for the table of enlil and key to open his mouth to speak saying to gilgamesh my friend we have reduced the forest to a wasteland how shall we answer enlil in nippur in your might, you slew the guardian. What was this wrath of yours that you went trampling through the forest? Um, and uh, it, it, the notes that I sent to you, it was like, you know, th th there's there's something uh, like th that part of the, the trampling part of the tablet seems to like that fragment is missing. But, you know, just assuming that the way that Enkidu characterizes it is correct. Uh, there seems to be something going on psychologically, right? Where like Gilgamesh is engaged in some kind of overcompensation, right? Where, you know, after being so fearful, he's now unnecessarily just destroying too much, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's almost this kind of like, you know, almost like this proto, you know, environmentalist argument almost. Um, like, you know, why are you doing this, right? And Gilgamesh himself doesn't, Seems you know he has like a, a pragmatic answer, right? He he wants to like use the wood for uh, his his own uh, uh, purposes, but you know still like it, it just struck me as uh, clearly like psychologically like there is some kind of like bit of an overcompensation going on in Gilgamesh. Um, I'm not sure if you had like any you know any responses to that when you when you when you read it. Uh, not necessarily, I, I guess. <clears throat> The only thing that, that really came to mind for me was just uh, Gilgamesh kind of over overstepping the, the bounds of their victory in a way. Mm -hmm. He's he's potentially at this point a bit bloodthirsty or, or um, 
just greedy, you know, like they, they get this win and then he's going to just go ahead and this forest is mine now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's, we've defeated him. I can take it into my kingdom. I can do with it as I want. And there is this chiding by Enkidu to basically ask him to, to consider it and, and maybe leave it as something valuable in and of itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Let it, let it remain, let it stand again, kind of that, uh, hearkening back to him being of the wild and, and perhaps a respect for the forest. And uh, even though we're not explicitly told that he spent time in it, uh, he he must have. Or he mm-hmm. must have at least some awareness of it because he knows of Umbaba and where this forest is and whatever. So, uh, yeah, there there is this sense that Gilgamesh, even coming back to the idea of, of uh, great deeds and great works, is maybe seeing the forest now just as a means to an end. This is something we can, we can take, we can repurpose, and Akitu seems to have some kind of sense that it's uh, it's a good unto itself and should be mm-hmm. uh, should be kept intact at least in part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, th- this this brings us to a uh, uh, tablet six, right? So, like after this happens, and you know, Gilgamesh and Akitu uh, are, are are praised uh, in. Um, uh, uh, Uruk, um, uh, Ishtar, right? So this, like, you know, like, I guess uh, she's the Babylonian goddess of, of love and of sex and, uh, a, a few other things, kind of like Aphrodite, right? She's kind of stereotyped mm-hmm. as the goddess of love, whereas in fact, she's oftentimes also like, you know, just the goddess of like pure kind of, you know, like more kind of a like carnal passion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ishtar though is, is definitely like a bit more nefarious in many ways than, um, uh, than, than, than Aphrodite. Uh, so she's, you know, she, she sees this and she wants to marry Gilgamesh. She, she tries to seduce him and, and he rejects her. Um, and the thing that, that struck me here is so Sham had the prostitute is she, she, she's presented in this way where, uh, you know, she, she's, she's good, right? She educates in Kiru, right? There, there's nothing that you could say uh, that's really negative about her character in a way that you would, you know, perhaps normally expect, right, for uh, the ancients to say about, you know, like uh, loose women or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Ishtar definitely has much more of that quality, despite the fact that, A, she's not a prostitute, and B, you know, she, she's actually a goddess, right? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, when, when Gilgamesh, um, you know, rejects her, uh, there's this, you know, she, she ultimately goes, I think it's to her father and, uh, she, she, you know, she, she does like this kind of stereotypical thing where she's like, if you don't send down the bull of heaven, I'm going to scream. Right. And, and my <laughs> screams are going to like, you know, um, I, I think like in some translations, uh, like wake up the, the underworld and, you know, make its way to Uruk and, uh, you know, destroy the people. Uh-huh. In mm-hmm. other translations, it's ju- it's just kind of like you know the screams just supposed to be uncomfortable, but she's much more this kind of you know stereotyped uh, spurned woman, right? Um, there, there there there's not too much complexity uh, to her character, and again, like even in other settings, right? She's just kind of like all around negative, right? She she sort of forces her her brother into like a Persephone situation, um, and I I I I enjoy definitely some of the. Um, descriptions right of uh that gilgamesh makes towards ishtar in explaining why he's rejecting her right and and and, uh he says why would i want to take you in marriage 
you a frost that congeals no ice, a slatted door that stays not breeze nor drought, a palace that massacres warriors, an elephant which, and then it's broken, its hoods, pitch that stains the hands of its bearer, a water skin that cuts the hands of its bearer, a boulder that smashes a wall of stone, a battering ram that destroys a wall for the enemy, a shoe that bites the foot of its odor, uh-huh. <laughs> a shoe that bites the foot of its odor. Um, what bridegroom of yours did endure forever? What brave warrior of yours went up to the heavens? Um, and then he goes into like the, the stories of like the various lovers that are like turned into wolves or, you know, um, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and this actually is like 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 it's like two it's like like two pages of of, of insults right that she, that she yeah. just responds to in this kind of crazy fashion. Yeah, it, it is. It's it, there's a lot of interesting description, interesting writing there, and uh, it, it it is kind of um, a moment of humor in the text. Yeah. You know, because uh, I, I remember chuckling a little bit as I was reading this, and it was just like, "Wow, he's he's laying it on thick." You know, he's he's not going to withhold any any potential insight. He's like, basically, I you know, I know everything you've done, and uh, so so there's no way that this is going to work out, and you're going to tempt me. And uh, you know, she just basically is really angered by the fact he knows the truth and points it all out so succinctly, and uh, and then has to fly into this rage to send the bull of heaven down. And, and, and then at that point, you made a good point in your notes where there's some language that, uh, so, so here's a second battle now for Gilgamesh and Enkidu to fight together. They've mm-hmm. already defeated Humbaba. They've come back to the city victorious. As a result of that, Ishtar wants to be with Gilgamesh. He rejects her. Now they've got a battle of bull of heaven. And they, they talk about uh, if, if they, combined together they cannot be easily broken so again that kind of ecclesiastian language that we see in the bible mm-hmm. in that book and uh, i think i read somewhere uh, I, I wish i had it more easily at hand but in some of the commentary i was reading that uh, that that language in historical and, and ancient writing is quite rare so it was sort of interesting that it got used here and then mm-hmm. separately in the bible uh, again i i wish I had it on hand to expand more on that, but just, um, they do this, they, they have another victory, uh, some goings back and forth with the bull, but, uh, you know, they wrestle with it and they eventually win what by stabbing it, you know, between its shoulder blades and through its head kind of thing. Yeah. And then, and then from there we end up in this predicament where the gods decide that one of them has to die as recompense for for that so uh interesting that there was no real repercussions to them taking on humbaba maybe he didn't have any uh, god friends up there that were pissed but uh well well, this is supposed to be like a like a you know the the bull of heaven right so there is a kind of like sacred quality like i i think uh, humbaba is like has like a, a divine portions him i mean just like in keto right and just like gilgamesh um or, or semi-divine as well uh but um uh, like the, the bull of heaven like uh, it's supposed to like represent something kind of like more holy but then you mm-hmm. just wonder like well why h- how is it able to just kind of you know run you know kind of like crazy through a, a town and you know just kind of arbitrarily kill people right you know well again like we're going to get into like um later on with the bible how 
you know, there's this kind of conflict between what, what are the gods, um, you know, do, do these gods have any real rules, right? Do these gods, you know, do they simply engender chaos, right? Like, uh, like, like, how do you compare these kinds of gods to like a, a, a like monotheistic god, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I guess that's the only thing I can think of. Uh, there's like a, there's sort of like this, this quality to this bull that he, he's not supposed to be slain in any way by, you know, anybody that's like kind of the kind of like living world, right? Um, by any mortals. And, and they are both mortals, even if semi-divine. Um, yeah. Well, one of the other things I pointed out in my notes was that when the bull comes down, an awful lot of people do die. Uh, I guess whether we're going to assume it's from the imprints of its hooves in the ground or something, you know, these pits open up basically, mm -hmm. and, and men by the hundreds fall into them and die. And it's just mentioned and then brushed by. There's, there's no yeah. mourning over it. There's no, there's no moral claims about whether that's right or wrong. It just mm -hmm. occurs. And then we're sort of left with the rest of what goes on. We're eventually, and Kidu and Gilgamesh kill the bull. So it made me wonder a bit about ancient attitudes uh, and, and attitudes that have persisted in humanity, certainly up through the, the modern age here, where there's this, there, your focus is over here on this great battle and this story you're being told and these larger than life figures who are dueling it out. And the common people who just happen to sort of be carnage uh and collateral on the side who really cares you know we don't mm -hmm. none of their names are told to us we don't know anything about their lives they're just citizens of uruk and so um i think in a lot of ancient writing you do get this pretty strong sense of the great man or great person theory of history it's like well this is what matters this is what we're going to tell you about uh anything else that happened along the way mm, not really that important just kind of a sideshow um and so to me, this, this felt like another instance of that. And uh, through no fault of their own, people by the, the hundreds are just dying in a pretty, a pretty violent way. So I don't know if you had any other thoughts to expand on that. Yeah, I mean, and also through no fault of their own, um, you know, like Enkidu has to die, right? I mean, yeah. like in that situation, when this thing is loosed upon the world, um you as a king right and you as like the friend of the king uh you, you know you do have a specific role to play just like gods have a specific role to play you know these people have a specific role to play they don't exactly know the providence of of this uh bull necessarily uh they don't exactly know that this is forbidden uh they just know that you know a bunch of people died these are my subjects and uh, we need to uh deal with it right so mm -hmm. You know, so so he's sort of, you know, you have like the whims of one goddess, uh, then you have the whims of the other gods coming into play as well, right? Saying that, you know, uh, her, her whims, and that's the odd part. I mean, like Ishtar's whims and other myths, uh, they do get punished, right? When she wants to sort of like wage war against her sister, mm -hmm. um, that is considered, you know, unacceptable to the gods, right? So therefore you know, her uh, brothers punished um, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but here, you know, uh, I guess, cause th these are, you know, these are, these are whims that, that involve, um, you know, non-gods, right? Just, just ordinary mortals. Um, they're, they're not necessarily punished in any way, right? It's just kind of like, 
you know, um, imagine like, you know, like a bunch of like sibling rivalries up top where nobody's allowed to, uh, uh, you know, sort of like step on each other's toes too much. And yet, you know, every, everything below is essentially play things for you. Right. As gods. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't really have much to say about about the bull, but yeah, so we're we're at the point right where um uh the, the gods decide that uh in in tablet what is it tablet uh 7, right? So tab, tablet 7 and 8 uh Inkidu is is dying and ultimately he dies and there's this yeah. kind of, you know, funeral uh service for him. And uh we we have uh, Gilgamesh's uh, uh mourning um about that right um i'm not sure if you have this in your uh version of the epic but uh i I keep coming across this like reference to a famous line where gilgamesh ultimately does not go away from enkidu's corpse until he finds a maggot you know crawling out of his nose uh but i couldn't actually find it in, in my text i'm not sure if it appeared in your translation or what um, real quick, let me scan for it. I, I vaguely remember something like that. Hold on. Um, okay. So this would be in tablet seven, right? Um, it that, could even be in eight, right? Where the death yeah. uh, actually occurs. But mm-hmm. I mean, a- anyway, anyway, it's not important. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's just interesting how like, uh, like just, just a lot, just a lot of stuff, right. That I, that I'm looking for, right. Uh, when I'm like, sometimes even when I'm like, like listening to like some lectures about the stuff, they're referencing things that I know that in my version simply did not happen or did not happen in the way that they're being presented. Right. So, um, yeah. Interesting. I don't, yeah, I don't see those lines in my translation either. So, yeah. okay. Hmm. Yeah. But uh, j- just to get back to, I guess, Shamhat, right? So, um, you know, Nkidu is is uh, uh, dying and he's, um, you know, he's, he's sort of kind of lashing out against uh, the world. Um, and uh, uh, he, 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 you know, when he's like damning, you know, the world, he ultimately comes to uh, uh, Shamhat. So he like, he damns the hunter, the trapper, right? Which ultimately, and that's kind of the weird part. I mean, like, so... I mean, uh, the trapper exists and the trapper is the one that introduces ultimately, you know, um, uh, Gilgamesh to this entity, right? Like uh, the trapper tells Gilgamesh, hey, there's this wild man. Like, what am I supposed to do about him? Right. And this is, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he, he's never damning Gil- Gilgamesh, right? He's never damning the fact that they came into contact, but he's damning the person that brought them into contact, right? Um, right. And then he, he's he's coming to uh shamhat right um uh so after he had cursed the hunter to his heart's content he decided also to curse shamhat the harlot come shamhat i will fix your destiny a doom to endure for all eternity i will curse you with a mighty curse my curse shall afflict you now and forthwith a home to delight in you shall not acquire never to reside in the midst of a family in the young women's chamber you shall not sit your finest garment, the ground shall not defile. Your festive gown, the drunkard shall stain in the dirt. A household full of beauty you shall never acquire. 
for your home shall serve a potter's clay pit. You shall not have neither bedroom nor family shrine nor, nor hearth. No bed, chair, or table that people take pride in shall be found in your chamber. The couch you delight in shall be a hard bench. The dust of the crossroads shall be where you sit. A field of ruins shall be where you sleep. The shade of the rampart shall be where you stand. Thorn and briar shall skin your feet. Drunk and sober shall strike your cheek. Wives shall be plaintiff and bring claims against you. The roof of your house no builder shall plaster. And your chamber shall roost an owl. Um, so, you know, he's saying like, you weakened me, right? Yeah, you, 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 you hurt me. This is what you did to me. Right. And then Shamish, right. Uh, 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 the goddess, he, uh, he hears this, mm -hmm. um, uh, Owen and Kidu, why cursed Sham had the harlot who fed you bread that was fit for a god and poured you ale that was fit for a king who clothed you in a splendid garment and gave you his companion, the handsome Gilgamesh. So like, although um, uh, he, he, you know, there's no like pushback against the other damning that he does, like, you know, uh, Sham had again, like she, she, she's this interesting stand and in, in, in a way also now for like the trapper as well. Um, and she's this kind of like odd, like fulcrum, like, like from much of the text, right? Which is again, like you, like you mentioned earlier, like when she's sort of like compared like to a goddess, like she's she's given you know a, a position that you would never that you would never uh, uh, expect, right? Um, and, and you know uh, uh, this continues. And now Gilgamesh, your friend and your brother, will lay you out in a magnificent bed. On a bed of honor, he will lay you out. He will place you on his left on a seat of repose. The rulers of the underworld will all kiss your feet. Um, and, you know, when when uh, uh, Enkidu uh, realizes, you know, I'm, I'm just being kind of, I guess, uh, immature about this. I'm just lashing out. Uh, he takes back his curse, but the curse that he takes back, he replaces it with something that is just kind of, you know, it's 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 odd in the sense that um, it speaks to a little bit of his kind of like sense of like natural rights, like when we mentioned earlier, like when the text started, right? When he was very, you know, uh, angry at the fact that Gilgamesh was, you know, tyrannizing, uh, you know, the, the the grooms and and and, and the brides of, of these grooms. Um, here you have like a little bit of an inversion of this. So when he uh, addresses Shamhat again. This is this is what Enkidu says. My mouth that cursed you shall bless you as well. Governors shall love you and noblemen too. At one league off, men shall slap their thighs. At two leagues off, they shall shake out their hair. No soldier shall be slow to drop his belt for you. Obsidian he shall give you, lapis lazuli and gold. Earrings of gold shall be what he gives you. Ishtar, the ablest of gods. So Ishtar is being praised, right? The goddess that, you know, just completely, you know, lost her mind here. Um, Ishtar, the ablest of gods, shall gain you entrance to the man whose home is secure and wealth heaped high. For you, his wife shall be deserted, though mother of seven. Right. So it's like, OK, so he has this like sense of natural rights at the beginning where this like interference with this like burgeoning family that Gilgamesh is doing that that's not right. But in this case, um, maybe it's because of the position of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, this prostitute or maybe it's like something else or maybe it's because like just being in society, his sense of what natural rights are 
has been changed. Um, he's like almost like wishing that she would go and break apart families in some ways, right? Or maybe like in the past, like, you know, uh, wealthy men simply go to prostitutes and that's simply what they did and families did not get broken up in the process. But I, I just found that uh, interesting in, in light of what he said earlier, right? Uh, when he first came into, you know, this, uh, this sense of like innate right and wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, that was my response to this kind of like dying and, and funeral scene um, for uh, uh, for Enkidu. Yeah, I don't think I've got a lot to add there. If we want to move on toward Gilgamesh's mourning and wandering in Tablet yeah. Nine, and maybe you have something to say about the funeral. I don't really, I, I I didn't write much down about the funeral itself. Let me just look at my notes. I don't know that I really did. I think I highlighted a couple of the same lines you did, but uh, yeah, I, I don't have much else there. I really yeah. kind of moved on to tablet nine. So, I mean, and maybe we could sort of say that here. Like, we skipped over some tablets a little bit. Um, they sort of they they move the plot along, but you know, uh, there are parts in the text where. Uh, you could imagine maybe like people coming together, you know, maybe some of this was like sung, maybe it was like part of a, an oral tradition as well, besides also being written down. Maybe it was a, this, this text was part of like some festivities. So um, uh, perhaps, you know, it was even like acted out in some ways, but there's definitely like a little bit, you know, like of slack too. Like, I, I think like some of the funeral scene is a bit, bit has a bit of slack. Some of the, you know, earlier, uh, tablets, uh, that we kind of glossed over, you know, I feel like if we don't have too much to say, um, you know, it just speaks to a little bit of, of fat in the text, right? I, I don't want people to simply have the impression that this is, you know, a great poem and par with anything else that we could, you know, offer up um, in terms of uh, modern writing or even like pre-modern writing, because that's not necessarily the case. You know, I think it is telling that we do have to gloss over a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe you could take it away then from like his, his wanderings, right? So he, he goes off like in a search for immortality uh, a- after this, right? And he he kind of like perpetuates his own mourning, right? Even when he wanders, right? He has like, you know, he, he kind of like almost like in, in a homage to his friend, he's like trapping animals, right? And he's wearing their skins and, you know, he looks like, and he, he's, I think, kind of like made to look kind of silly and wild, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. like the gods that speak to him, they're like, sort of like, you know, like, what are you doing? Is this really your life at this point? Um, yeah, that that is true. He, uh, he definitely has a little bit of just a, a, a crisis, personal crisis, you know, and uh, yeah. It's kind of just kind of odd, a little bit of a break from his normal character. And uh, let's let's see, where do we want to pick this up? Um, I had I had one interesting line toward the beginning of Tablet Nine. I'm going to try to see if there's a, a a parallel to it in the Andrew George translation here. Maybe maybe if you read it, I'll because uh, I have it open. If you read it, maybe I could find it. Okay, so uh, I'll pick up a couple lines beforehand so he's going toward the mountain passes to begin this journey and it says at night in the mountain passes there were lions and gilgamesh was afraid and entered afraid into the moonlit mountain passes praying to sin the moon god hear my prayer and save me as i enter into the passes where there are lions 
At night, when he lay down to sleep, there were confusions of dreams, and in the dreams, confusions of noises, confusions of swords, daggers, axes. An adversary gloried over him in struggle, and in the dream, who knows who won? So it's just, I thought, a really interesting couplet there. An adversary gloried over him in struggle, and in the dream, who knows who won? It's just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's almost as like, without Enkidu there to interpret his dreams for him, he doesn't even know what went on anymore. Yeah. You know, not, not, only, not, only, not only does he not know how to interpret it, he's just not even sure what happened. And so it's, uh, it's a, nice, a nice poetic technique or literary technique there. Again, you know, we're talking about some of the strength of characterization here in, in, in this epic poem compared to some others. And uh, those lines were a highlight for me with, with that and uh, Gilgamesh's evolving character here. Did you find any lines in the, the Andrew George that seemed to parallel those? Um, a little bit, although like, uh, do you have like the scorpion men um, in, in your, who, who sort of tell him like, you know, what you seek, you know, do not go further. Um, and he like ignores their, uh, I, I don't, I don't have a, th that exactly. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I've got the scorpion beings because like in the Andrew George says the text of Tablet 9 resumes to Mashu's twin mountains he came. And, and so my mm -hmm. right after that, and in the dream, who knows who won line, it says Gilgamesh came to the mountain called Mashu. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's somewhere in there, but um, I don't, yeah, I don't see anything in the Andrew George translation here that is equivalent to that lack of a, a understanding of his dream. So. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if this is before or after uh, in yours, but uh, you know, Shamash like you know watches uh, him, and you know just just says, "Oh, Gilgamesh, where are you wandering? The life that you seek, you never will find, right?" Mm -hmm. um, and you know, like part of the life is like he he's walking around, he's saying, "I am afraid of death," right? So this is kind of like uh, I don't want to say it's totally new, but uh, you know, he 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 shows both bravery as well as like just kind of a, a hesitation earlier but at this point you know after his friend dies like he 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 he, he does have has have the sense that you know what is all of this for right if this is if this is how it ends and mm -hmm. you know shamash and also others tell him you know that this thing that you're trying to obviate right um a death right that's it's just uh, meaningless right Th that is the thing that is vanity um uh that is the thing that you uh, uh, cannot get, right? And so he he ultimately goes on and uh, he finds this, um, not really a god, but I guess like at some point, you know, there's a cult that develops around uh, uh, Uta uh, Nepishti. Um, mm -hmm. uh, technically uh, uh, not a god, right? Not a deity, but still was granted immortality uh, by the right. gods uh, in exchange for, um, uh, rendering a service, which is like saving humanity as well as, as well as animals, right. From, from the great flood. Right. So, um, maybe mm -hmm. we could just get to, uh, his, uh, uh, coming across, uh, and, and, uh, he, he, he tells Gilgamesh about, you know, like, okay, so you want to know how I became immortal. Uh, this is how, right. And, and he, he gives the story of the flood and we should probably just read that, um uh in full right like uh, it, it's called tablet uh 10 at the edge of the world because um th this is the point where he 
like like if we're gonna you know if we're gonna uh, go through the Bible right like to just see some of the similarities right uh, between um, uh, the, uh, the the story of the flood there and and what Udinapishti relates to to Gilgamesh. Um, so uh, this is. And, you know, Gilgamesh says, like, you know, I just cannot bear what happened to my friend. Uh, and and he keeps, like, badgering Udinapishti for for an answer, right? And and the story, right, that supposedly, like, nobody else was supposed to know, right? This is not information that is supposed to be willingly shared with other mortals. But uh, he, he uh, does so anyway. Um, and this is what... <sighs> This is the, the, this is what Udinapishti says. Um, so uh, I'm not sure if you have an analog, but this is around like line 270 or so uh, in in uh, uh, tablet uh, 10 in, in my version. Uh-huh. Said Udinapishti to him to Gilgamesh, "Why Gilgamesh do you ever chase sorrow? You who are a mix of God's flesh and human, whom the gods did fashion like your father and mother. Did they ever Gilgamesh build a palace for the fool?" place a throne in the council and tell him sit the fool gets left over yeast instead of fresh ghee bran and grist instead of best flour he's clad in a rag instead of fine garments instead of a belt he is girt with old rope because he has no advisors to guide him his affairs lack counsel um, now consider your support if gilgamesh the temples of the gods have no provisioner the temples of the goddesses. In Kidu, indeed, they took to his doom. But you, you toiled away, and what did you achieve? You exhaust yourself with ceaseless toil. You fill your sinews with sorrow, bringing forward the end of your days. Man is snapped off like a reed in a cane break. The comely young man, the pretty young woman, all too soon in their prime, death abducts them. No one at all sees death. No one at all sees the face of death. No one at all hears the voice of death. Death so savage who hacks men down. Ever do we build our households. Ever do we make our nests. Ever do brothers divide their inheritance. Ever do feuds arise in the land. Ever the river has risen and brought us the flood. The mayfly floating on the water. On the face of the sun, its countenance gazes. Then all of a sudden, nothing is there. The abducted and the dead alike is their lot. But never was drawn the likeness of death. Never in the land did the dead greet a man. The Anunnaki, the great gods held in assembly. Mamira, maker of destiny, fixed fates with them. Both death and life they did establish. But the day of death they do not disclose. Reminds me of that line from the Avid Brothers, uh, that song, Die, 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 mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, where, uh, you know, uh, uh, you're never supposed to know that that the day of death, right? And they go into their, like, poetic passages as far as, like, what happens, like, if you were to know this. Um, so, yeah, and, and the next one is when you uh, get... Um, uh, is is where we get the, the story of of the great flood. I'm not sure if you, you know, have anything to say about those passages, or if you want to like get straight to the flood, or what. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple things. So first of all, I know I'm throwing it back for a second here, but in um, 
the wanderings in tablet nine, mm -hmm. just in, in my version, some of my favorite lines I wanted to point out. Um, cause the, cause these feel among the most modern of anything I read. Um, and so this is when he's, he's like following the path of the sun at night through the mountain passes and everything's pitch black. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's going on and on and on. And it says just then at the end of the ninth league, just once, the rough tongue of the north wind licked at his face. It was like the tongue of a wild bull or a lion. He struggled on through darkness, trying to breathe. The darkness pressed in upon him, both nothing and something. After he struggled, blind, his companionless way, through eleven leagues of the darkness, nothing at all, and something, ahead of him, a league ahead, a little light, a grayness began to show. Uh, so I'll stop there, but I, I just, I love those lines because um, it, it reminded me like of Wallace Stevens almost in a way, mm -hmm. right? Some of these little, little inversions, both nothing and something, uh, you know, the enjambment on it, on it is also interesting and good. Um, so anyway, just, just pointing out some good and interesting writing from uh, David Ferry there. Nice, nice work, David Ferry on some interesting translation. And then, um, as you were reading through that pas passage you just did, where he's talking to uh, Utanapishti, I did find this line about a worm dropping out of Enkidu's nose um, that you asked about earlier. So mm -hmm. I, I, it's making a late game appearance here. It's when Gilgamesh is talking to him and and talking, you know, like recapping their adventures together. Um, oh, I see it too. Now I see it too again. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see it? So he just says, um, yeah, I, I, I expected to see it during the funeral scene, but, um, right. I guess it wasn't. Yeah. 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 So, um, anyway, mine says, I saw the worm drop out of Enkidu's nose. Must I die too? Must I too be like that? Mm -hmm. Um, but then, yeah, I, I actually prefer a lot of the lines and think they're, they're better, um, in your, in the Andrew George version that you just read with all of this, like, once again, Ecclesiastian, all is vanity kind of mindset here uh, as he's kind of wrapping up. Uh, Utanapishti is giving these comments to Gilgamesh, but I'll just read from my translation how, it, how it's written and how it sounds. Um, you who were born the son of a goddess mother, why do you grieve because of a mortal father? How long does a building stand before it falls? How long does a contract last? How long will brothers share the inheritance before they quarrel? How long does hatred, for that matter, last? Time after time, the river has risen and flooded. The insect leaves the cocoon to live but a minute. How long is the eye able to look at the sun? From the very beginning, nothing at all has lasted. See how the dead and the sleeping resemble each other. Seen together, they are the image of death. The simple man and the ruler resemble each other. The face of the one will darken like that of the other. And then the last few lines about Mamita, uh, Mother Goddess, and, and everything else. So uh, it's way pared down in my version. You know, there's, there's so mm -hmm. much more language in yours uh, that you just read that I, you know, I think kind of really gives this section more life. Um, but at any rate, still, yeah, still some interesting, you know, metaphors there and, and phrasing of, uh, you know, some of life's vanity. Yeah, the, the earlier uh, uh, passages that you read from when he's wandering about and, and the wind uh, is at him and it's nothingness. Uh, um, <clears throat> yeah, that uh, here uh, when 
you're about to get to that part, there's like, you know, ellipses and um, like, you know, broken fragments, I guess. So uh, th this wasn't put in here, although, you know, if it was, I, I probably would have uh, noticed it at some point. Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, yeah, like, like tons of very modern uh, writing, especially like when we get like closer and closer to the end of the book, you know, it's like, it's like this, uh, uh, at the beginning, a, a lot of this is is kind of a uh, the the modernity is more kind of structural. It's more in the characterization. Here, you know, we get that you know those kinds of um, kind of like more you know modern sort of biblical uh, ideas. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where like I'm just always fascinated by a lot of Asian writing, uh, if only uh, for the fact that. Um, you know, these are people from thousands of years ago and, you know, as alien as many of those societies seem, I mean, these are, you know, identical concerns. These are uh, things that are felt in very similar ways. Um, mm. So that's always yeah. uh, interesting. Um, right. You want to get on to the flood narrative here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and actually, so um, so uh, uh, we, we could do s some of this uh, reading, but in, in the video that I was like one of the videos that I watched, right? That um, you watched as well. Um, let me just do a a, a, a screen share here. Uh, he he goes into you know uh, the the lecturer is at a Christian college. He starts to uh, read those uh, passages, right? To like the, the, the lecture is about the fact that there's these similarities between the Bible and, um, um, uh, let me just Go to see. Me. Sure. Yeah. So let's just uh, share that now. Yeah. So he's going to go through this, uh, text um and he you know he's going to read from it and he's going to draw some comparisons and ultimately just just say some things about the gods and the nature of the gods and contrast it with uh the bible which you know you and i uh we both used to be christians and we come from i guess a bit of a similar uh, tradition that he does but uh, i guess we no longer agree with much of this assessment but um Let's see, and this is gonna be about like 11 minutes, so let's just uh, stick through it here. And now we have this description, and this is, uh, this description of the flood itself. When the first light of dawn, a black cloud came from the horizon, it thundered within where Adad, Lord of the Storm, was riding. In front over hill and plain, Shalut and Hanish, heralds of the storm, led on. Then the gods of the abyss rose up. Nergal pulled out the dams of the nether waters, water from below. Ninurta, the warlord, threw down the dikes. And the seven judges of hell, the Anaki, raised their torches, lighting the land with livid, uh, livid flame. A stupor of despair went up to heaven. When the god of the storm turned daylight to darkness, when he smashed the land like a cup, one whole day the tempest raged, gathering fury as it went. It poured over the people like the tides of battle. A man could not see his brother, nor the people be seen from heaven. Even the gods were terrified at the flood. They fled to the highest heaven, the firmament of Omnu. They crouched against the walls, cowering like curs. Then Ishtar, the sweet-voiced queen of heaven, cried out like a woman in travail, Alas, 
The days of old are turned to dust because I commanded evil. Why did I command this evil in the council of all the gods? I commanded wars to destroy the people, but are they not my people? For I brought them forth now like the spawn of fish. They float in the ocean. The great gods of heaven and of hell wept. They covered their mouths. So here we have the flood, which terrifies even the gods and causes them this great sense of regret. All right, one more paragraph. You're doing this okay? Bearing with me here? All right. For six days and six nights, the winds blew. Torrent and tempest and flood overwhelmed the world. Tempest and flood raged together like warring hosts. When the seventh day dawned, the storm from the south subsided. The sea grew calm, the flood was stilled. I looked at the face of the world and there was silence. All mankind was turned to clay. The surface of the sea stretched as flat as a rooftop. I opened a hatch and the light fell on my face. Then I bowed low, I sat down, I wept. The tears streamed down my face for on every side was the waste of water. I looked for land in vain. But 14 leagues distant, there appeared a mountain, and there the boat grounded on the mountain of Nisir. The boat held fast. She held fast and did not budge, which he then repeats about eight times. So I'll drop down. When the seventh day dawned, I loosed a dove and let her go. She flew away, but finding no resting place, she returned. Then I loosed a swallow. And she flew away, but finding no resting place, she returned. I loosed a raven. She saw that the waters had retreated. She ate, she flew around, she cawed, she did not come back. Then I threw everything open to the four winds. I made a sacrifice and poured out a libation on the mountaintop. Seven and again, seven cauldrons I set up on their stands. I heaped up wood and cane and cedar and myrtle. When the gods smelled the sweet savor, they gathered like flies over the sacrifice. Remember, it's quid pro quo worship. Sacrifices feed the gods. Then at last, Ishtar also came. She lifted her necklace with the jewels of heaven that once Anu had made to please her. O you gods here present by the lapis lazuli around my neck, I shall remember these days as I remember the jewels of my throat. These last days I shall not forget. Let all the gods gather, gather around the sacrifice except Enlil. He shall not approach this offering, for without reflection he brought the flood. He consigned my people to destruction. And then the text goes on. So, any casual reader of that has to be impressed that there are these points where we have this kind of similarity between the two. You also have to be impressed, I think, with the fact that there are some conspicuous and obvious differences, aren't there? And so it is an interesting kind of parallel in which we have both those things which seem to be somewhat similar and yet some very striking and significant points of difference. The uh, scholar who wrote the intro to this book, which is, by the way, a very fine treatment, I don't know that he's coming at all from a Christian perspective, but he summarizes at one point the considerable similarities but also differences between these two accounts. And I can't do better than just kind of summarize what he says here. But he says, uh, he notes this first of all, in the biblical story, the same machinery is used. The building of the boat, the entry of the animals, the flood, 
the loosing of birds, the sacrifice. But while the God who remembered Noah, biblical account, lives in awful isolation, our scholar says, in the Assyrian, as in the Sumerian stories, we are still in the world of factious, flustered, and fallible deities. And that is the first great difference that we probably want to notice, is that while the Gilgamesh account gives us, at least in terms of the factual scenario, these striking similarities, notice the difference in the way the supernatural is portrayed to us. In the Gilgamesh epic, you've got these same gods who are at each other's throats, they're squabbling, they're factious, they're jealous, they're immoral, and so on. And there's a great, wonderful, holy dignity about the God of the Bible who brings this judgment to bear. He goes on and says, there's a real danger that the powers of chaos and destruction will get out of hand. Things do indeed go too far. The gods are shocked by the results of their own action, but nothing shows more strikingly the difference in outlook and purpose than the conclusion. In place of God's solemn pledge to Noah, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day shall not cease, he says, in contrast, there is the nauseating picture of God swarming like flies over the sacrifice. And that again becomes one of the most striking distinctions. Here on the one hand is God who is in perfect control of what's happening, not in any sense dependent on humanity, nor terrified or intimidated by the flood that has been unleashed. But in the Gilgamesh epic, these gods themselves are on the run at the uncontrolled powers that have been unleashed by their own hands. Instead of the rainbow pledge, God promising to Noah this continuity that would continue now, which we continue to enjoy, there is only Ishtar fingering her necklace and exclaiming that she will not forget these days. But this is the word of the most notoriously faithless of the gods. Here's Ishtar giving some little hint that, oh, this was so bad, we better not let this happen again. But who can trust her, you see? Whereas the great God, the holy God of Noah's, experience makes this solemn promise that even though there's been this catastrophe from now on, like clockwork, this cosmology is going to operate and be something we can depend on. Uh, so too the immortality and semi-divine status which Utnapishtim win for themselves and their families is very different from the solemn covenant of the Bible between God and the still entirely human Noah. Noah's not given immortality. He's still a human being and treated that way in the biblical account, as you know. And so the Mesopotamian myth, he concludes, leaves the people in a state of anxiety, lest there be some catastrophe like this that would happen again. There's no sense that now they can rest securely on a kind of firm foundation of God's providential care of the universe, that's the way Gilgamesh leaves it. And immortality for Gilgamesh is simply the legacy that a man can leave for himself by building great monuments with his name all over them and then putting his grave somehow inside those monuments. 
But the biblical account leaves us with something so much more grand, so much more uh, befitting the, the uh, great dignity of God himself and the dignity that he gives to us. Because there is this sense in which God now has accomplished his purpose and placed us in this situation of, at least within the created order, a kind of security. So again, as I'm kind of reaching a conclusion here, what do we learn from this? We learn that there is this striking correlation of a biblical account. This, this certainly doesn't prove necessarily that a deluge happened, but it is very interesting. We see that there's these striking similarities, but we also see that at the deepest level, these are two different stories. That one of the stories is simply the speculations of the human imagination trying to make sense out of a catastrophe and at best coming up with ambiguous and unsatisfying solutions and answers. And on the other hand, we have divine revelation, which, account, which gives us the same great catastrophe, but we come out the other end of the tube in this one with this deep, deep sense that God is to be trusted, that God, even in the tumultuous storms of life, as bad as they may be, is the one who places us in an ark of protection, a guarded place, a place of security in the midst of what may be, you know, the chaos around us. And that motif runs through the scriptures of God placing us in that ordered, protected kind of uh, area and keeping us safe, overshadowing us, if you will, even in the midst of the catastrophes that may befall us elsewhere. Yeah, so, uh, you know, like the, the, just to like add a little bit to what you said, the, the, the God, um, and Leal and, uh, Gilgamesh, uh, as this is being related, uh, depending on what myth you read, it's, it could be phrased a little bit differently, but, uh, he was just kind of upset that, you know, all the people were making too much noise, right? So mm -hmm. his solution to that was, I'm going to send a great flood and, and kill all of them because uh, I hate this noise. And uh, eventually, like, you know, some some gods, they they uh, feel bad for people and they they, they tell Uranapishti, uh, like, hey, if you want to save the world, this is what you do, right? And eventually he gets granted uh, immortality for the service. Um, and I mean, uh, th so take like the Christian perspective on this, like, I guess naturally would be one of, um, you know, like monotheism is, is, is progressive. Right. And I guess it is progressive in the sense that, you know, monotheism by itself, uh, will probably include more people under its umbrella, right. Than like a typical, you know, um, uh, uh, polytheistic religion, but, you know, I, I just have issues with the way that, you know, like a lot, a lot of uh, like the phrasing and the framing, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's done in a way that's just way too self-serving and it glosses over what is actually said in Genesis, right? Uh, what, 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 what Noah is told and also how, you know, the Bible characterizes uh, uh, God's feelings and decisions before the flood, during the flood, after the flood, um, and uh, I'm not sure, like, if you have uh, anything to say about that, or if, like, you want to just like read uh, that that part of uh, Genesis that would sort of like like that's interesting. Like, I mean, he, he's a Christian lecturer, but I mean, you read Genesis and it kind of refutes everything that he's saying, right? And it shows kind of how you know dishonest a lot of that framing is. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, we could definitely read the passages in Genesis just to uh, to frame it up. And um, why don't we do that, and then we can comment more? Because yeah, of course, I um, you know I have a few things to say about that that exact same idea in terms of uh, <laughs> you know yeah. how, how many how many logical leaps we decide to make. Uh, yeah. you know, without any justification to eventually get to uh, a, a totally different interpretation of roughly the same kind of, uh, you know, the same kind of mythology. So, yeah. And, and you said you went to a Christian college, right? In the notes. So like, um, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you said you've sat through like these kinds of things all the time, right? This is like a very common thing that happens, I'm guessing. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I mean, within church as well, of course, right? This doesn't strike me as all that different from a typical yeah. uh, Sunday sermon where, you know, it might be viewed as kind of, a, you know, interesting to relate the Bible to some other ancient text. And let's see how the Bible is clearly correct and superior while this other text mm -hmm. is just misguided. Uh, that happens a lot, you know, and I, I think it's kind of um, just a, a bit of a dishonest effort to grasp at some kind of intellectualism or something uh yeah. on, on behalf of the bible and christianity but but yeah i mean then within my um like my new testament and old testament classes in college um same kind of idea you know these these kind of lectures where mm -hmm. you you do some kind of uh hermeneutical breakdown on on a passage of the bible and maybe a, a couple different languages and how you know how the greek looks versus how the hebrew looks mm -hmm. etc and then eventually get some kind of um consensus on on the meaning of the passage and and make all kinds of uh justifications about it so yeah um now with with reading this do you, you have the kjv right king james yeah. Yeah. so if, if you want to read that because i don't have that on hand i've got a yeah i just a, have it open here yeah. yeah new international version which is again kind of more like streamlined and modernized so if yeah. you want to do the the kjv then go for it yeah we would never read something like this on the stream <laughs> <laughs> we, we only we only read the king james here right um right. yeah so so this is a Ge genesis 6 um and let's just you know let's just compare his framing with what th the bible actually says so it's it's subtitled here wickedness of mankind and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and that they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? So, um, so far, like, you know, uh, 
just just a couple of things that are alarming to me. So if we want to say that um, uh, the gods of Babylonia are, you know, chaotic and they don't necessarily have clear cut, you know, uh, preordained reasons, right? In the sense that people know what the rules are, right? Like his his main objection, it seems to me, is that uh, look, you know, the gods of Babylonia and the people of Babylonia, uh, there's this disconnect between what the gods do and what people know to be the rules or uh, uh, know not to be the rules, and that's a problem, right? At a minimum, mm-hmm. human beings need to be able to say that uh, I know what God wants and I could either be, you know, in God's favor or I could fall out of favor. And there is, you know, a reward for being in favor and a punishment for falling out of favor. But so far, like, you know, there's this kind of generic statement, right, that, um, uh, you know, men have become evil. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, but these are people that God has created. And actually later on, uh, in, in, um, uh, in, in Genesis, right after the flood is over, you know, he says, essentially, uh, I'm not going to do this again because, uh, from the start, man's imagination is evil, right? This is simply the way that things are. This is how I created them. So, uh, you know, we don't know exactly yet. Like, like so far in Genesis, right? There is no sense that uh, people know that the punishment for evil, which is again never really defined, uh, is going to be this kind of flood. And also, interestingly enough, like he's he also wants to punish the animals, right? Um, mm-hmm, and right. you know, th- th- this idea of animals like experiencing uh, evil or behaving in evil ways, you know, uh, that's a problem in and of itself. But uh, uh, in my Bible, which which is like a study Bible, there's like a lot of like commentary about the, some of the specific passages. And when we get to uh, this part, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Uh, the biggest like commentary on this page is about this phrase, right? Uh, uh, the commentator wants to impress upon you that actually God no, in no you know, circumstance would ever actually repent doing anything because God has to be perfect. So the way mm-hmm. that this phrase is explained away is as follows. <clears throat> Repented does not imply that God made a mistake in his dealings with men, but rather indicates the change in divine direction resulting from the actions of man. So it's not so much that God did anything wrong. It's that the divine direction itself changes based on the actions of people, right? Which is like, I mean, I guess you could, you know, justify theology in any way that you want by, you know, doing this kind of gata the gops ad hoc explanation, but that's all it is. I mean, it's just ad hoc bullshit, right? It's like, you know, here's what the Bible states. I have no way of, you know, uh, finding comfort in this. So, you know, let me just make something up, right? right. And and even this is the way that it's a phrase, like it's, it's an anthropo, uh, what is it? Anthropopathism, right? Uh, a human emotion applied to God, right? Uh, describing the pain that has caused God by the destructiveness of his creatures, right? Um, and later on, like, you know, in Genesis, it, it, it says, uh, uh, I, I will destroy them because it repenteth me that I have made them, right? Uh, it grieved him at his heart, right? Uh, this, you know, like, th- no way does, does this strike me as, 
something that God himself would in fact feel if you have a perfect being. It strikes me a lot more as this is what a human being is writing, you know, uh, 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 creating a book that, you know, tries to uh, explain God in human terms. But, you know, after the fact, of course, you could say that, well, because it's a human description, it can't capture, you know, the fullness, right, and the comprehensive nature, you know, of, of what God, in fact, believes. But, you know, so far, you know, I think the most important point is I, I don't see any rules that were laid down that, that you know, suggest that this is, in fact, how the world should end. Like, to me, this is not any more or less arbitrary than Enlil saying people are too noisy. I want to do away with them. Right. And because this is a monotheistic religion, you, do, you don't have other gods that come to the picture and tell Enlil, how could you do this? This is just insane. You know, why, 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 why? Like, can't you see that this is evil? Instead, since you have one God, what naturally happens? Oh, it's God arguing with himself. You know, uh -huh. saying, I'm not going to do this again. You know, we have literally a stand-in for polytheism here, you know, within monotheism, because, you know, this is this is the only way that, you know, human beings can interpret such a thing. And I mean, and this is such a, you know, it's such a human document to begin with, and, you know, in, in both cases. Um, yeah. I mean, like, do you have anything to say like, so far about, like, the, the passages here or, or, or what? Um, no, I, I think you summed it up well, and... Yeah, obviously, with the with Bruce Gore, the lecturer there, I, I don't know this for sure, but I feel pretty comfortable assuming that his lecture is coming from also a point of assumption that this literally happened, that, yeah. that the flood took place, which there's no geological evidence that it did. So yeah. the, the, the justification game is going to run very deep. Um, you also are, are certainly seeing... like. This is Genesis 6, and in Genesis 1, we had the creation of, of mankind. So we've still got thousands upon thousands of pages left in the Bible. I mean, we're about 20 pages in, and God's got to have a, a, you know, a, a redo. Uh, yeah. So not, too, not very impressive from that yeah. standpoint. And uh, it, yeah, it's just there's so many different avenues we could go down in terms of the the messiness of the justifications and the theology and whatever that uh, I think it'd probably get kind of boring because yeah. <laughs> people can search these things out for themselves or, or just kind of intuit it, uh, you know, from, from reading, but yeah, we'll, I guess we'll get into the, uh, uh do you want to read through the whole actual, yeah, I mean, let, you know, let, let, arc yeah, set up? I'll, I'll skip around a little bit if only because like, I mean, this is very similar to what's in Gilgamesh, right? Like we have, yeah. um, you know, this is, this is clearly taken from Gilgamesh, right? It's not, a lot of it is like literally verbatim. So, um, you know, that part is not deniable. Uh, just mm -hmm. skipping ahead to, uh, uh, um, uh, verse 13 in chapter six and God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And the irony, of course, is, is that, um, you know, if you want to say that there was like violence then, right, and there was evil in men's hearts, uh, simply on account of like a total loss of faith right now today, right? Uh, I think God would have to also say that even if we've reduced violence through like, you know, mediation in the state, uh, we have evil in the sense that a total loss of faith, right? So, you know, why isn't this uh, meant to happen again? Mm -hmm. 
Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt, shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and within this pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With lower second and third story shalt thou make it. So, and this is also similar to Gilgamesh, right? We have a description of the ship, uh, uh, the, you know, the multiple stories, uh, the fact that it's measured in cubits of a similar size. Um, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, uh, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee, right? Again, similar to uh, Uranapishti, right? You're going to come into the ark and we're going to save you and you're going to repropagate the race. Um, so uh, animals are brought in again, just like in Gilgamesh. Um, and uh, so the only thing that I would say uh, also about, about like, the specifics of the flood is uh noah then releases birds right the first one is what is it um he first set out a raven a raven he sends out yeah, yeah a dove and then, and then after, a dove again and then a dove again yeah and uh i think the dove is the first one in gilgamesh and the raven is the last but the point right. is it's like you know we have the same set of birds um and there's a sparrow uh, in Gilgamesh as well. Oh yeah, there's a the sparrow there as well. Yeah. Um, and then you know, after the flood uh, uh, goes on and on, uh, the flood uh, uh, abates, and uh, God God tells Noah about the specifics of this uh, 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 covenant. Um, so, and God said, this is the token of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be set in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is upon the earth. Um, wait, and before that, there was like something else that I, um, that I thought was very revealing and just kind of contradicted what he had to say. Um, what was it? Uh, oh, so so before before that, uh, after Noah builds the altar, the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more, any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, sea time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Right. So 
nothing nothing substantively has changed right from uh, uh the from uh after you know genesis when adam and eve are uh, expelled from the garden um until now i mean you killed all these you know uh, other people but the nature of what human beings are which you know in this framing is you know is is evil right this is from the start of the imagination this is from youth right this is from the beginning and to the end so um when we talk about the rules right even if we accept that there's a different level of chaos between this god and the babylonian gods um there doesn't seem to be you know that much of a difference when it comes to the rules i mean if you're gonna say that you're gonna send this flood because of this mass evil uh, but then you don't do anything to change the nature and then just arbitrarily say, I'll never do this thing again just because, and then repeat the same claim that you made at the beginning to first justify the flood. You know, that that's not a rational argument, right? But the the you know, the the, the Christian has to come back and say, well, again, you know, God is comprehensive. We only get a little bit in into, you know, the logic behind it all, but the logic as it's presented literally, right? The rules and, you know, the rules that we can objectively know, these are not the rules that you, you know, dream up in your head. These are the rules in the Bible, but the rules in the Bible seem to suggest that, um, we have an arbitrary flood and and nothing substantively has changed about people after the flood except you simply depopulated them and interestingly enough like when the gods you know come together and they condemn and leo for doing what he did they say something like well if you thought there were some bad people or some noisy people you could have sent some lions right to depopulate them or you could have done some sort of like minor you know environmental damage that would have depopulated them you didn't have to kill all of them and oddly enough for all the criticism that he would have of the babylonian gods that applies in the same way i mean like you know this idea of just like slightly depopulating them uh for the purpose of making them less noisy it's the same exact reason that you would apply here right i mean there is no difference as far as i can tell yeah, there, there's really not. I mean, you summed it up well. Uh, there, there's so many different ways that you could approach it and, and say kind of the exact same thing. But um, definitely one of, you know, a couple of the major things that I've, you know, thought, uh, you know, in, in rereading this is like, number one, uh, first of all, Noah, Noah's the chosen one. Noah gets picked and he's blameless before God. How is that possible? I mean, if he's a human, if he's a man like any other man that's apparently so, you know, despicable now, mm -hmm. um, and his imagination, like any other imagination, is corrupt from youth, you know, so that's not justified. It's just that, you know, he's, we need a character to do this thing. So he gets mm -hmm. picked and whatever. Um, and, and then, you know, his, it's assumed, I guess, that his descendants, like God, you know, does the flood and wipes everything out. And then, you know, Noah survives. And then he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do it again, but seems to kind of already be resigned to the fact that stuff's going to get shitty again. Mm -hmm. Right. He's like, yeah, we'll let you and your, I mean, what makes, what makes God think that Noah's descendants, not a one of them is going to be mm -hmm. corrupt and start yeah. off some new family chain. Uh, so that's always been funny. Yeah, and, 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 and as soon as that, that's the thing, as soon as that, that scene ends, right. Uh, we get into like Noah condemning his sons for seeing him naked. Right. So yeah. like the evil starts up again. Right. And the evil now is like, Oh, they saw me naked. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a big cycle from a, um, from a purely like technical standpoint, you know, I've, I've also wondered, you know, how did, um, how and, and why presumably, did we get any fish on board the ark? 
you know, and, and why didn't, yeah. why didn't the, the ocean creatures, they probably fared fine during the flood, yeah. right? I mean, it's just more of their native habitat coming down. So I, yeah. um, I, I so, think so were, the other animals were evil, but the fish are fine. Yeah. Fish are chill. Um, you know, how would you get a Megalodon shark on board the ark? It seems like that one shark is probably bigger than the, the ark itself. Uh, right. There's just, there's just some technical issues here. Um, well, 6,000 years ago, we didn't have a Megalodon shark. I don't think. Was it older than that? Yeah, m- m- maybe I think. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the thing. If, if if you accept like a literal kind of you know reading them, you're gonna have to um, you know, you're gonna have to do a lot of work here. And uh, yeah, yeah, you're gonna have to yeah. do a lot of work that can't be uh, that it can't actually be done. But yeah, at, at any rate, just kind of coming back, yeah, to the whole like to compare these two because that's you know that's what the professor's doing there in that lecture. Um, I agree with you from the standpoint of you know are the whims of one dictatorial monotheistic god any less chaotic than a you know somewhat round table discussion uh, among multiple gods of course not i mean we've seen the havoc that one maniacal person human being you know can can wreak as long as they get enough other people infected with their idea so uh if there's a being that is unchecked and can do exactly whatever they want at any given time um you know, it, it, it's it's just as chaotic, if not more so, and more terrifying. One of the mm-hmm. things that persists in the Gilgamesh epic is that, um, you know, they bless Utnapishti or Utnapishtim, however you pronounce it, um, you know, with immortality. He's kind of rewarded for this, not dissimilar to what happens with Noah. But then in the meantime, as the Gilgamesh epic goes on, there's this plant out there that apparently can grant immortality to anybody. Mm-hmm. So the gods kind of like, throw an olive branch out to humanity and things continue on. And there's still like some semblance of, um, of of harmony or reward and like where human beings don't have to be fully dependent for the rest of eternity on God's uh, provision and God's whim or of the gods. Whereas, you know, biblically in, in a monotheistic setup, it's like you're, you know, from here on out, he could do this again anytime. We don't know. We're totally, uh, you know, at his mercy. And then, um, there's just so much more pain and suffering that all of the, you know, his followers go through over the, you know, the rest of the years and everything yeah. else. And it's, uh, it's just like, what, you know, what really was the, the positive at the end of the day, you get the sense in Gilgamesh that like, he still has hope that he can do something good. You know, he tries to find this plant that he could take back to his people and say, he's found immortality. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know, maybe that's not that different from like, oh, just believe in me and you'll have eternal life. Mm-hmm. But you know what I'm saying? It's There's a couple bones that get thrown to humans in the Gilgamesh epic mm-hmm. that aren't really thrown to people in, uh, in the Bible. Yeah. So. I mean, I mean, I understand, you know, monotheism from a, you know, kind of like, I guess, somewhat more political perspective, the, the leveraging of power, right, with monotheism, uh, it, it can look uh, fairly different and again it, it's it's quote unquote progressive in that sense but uh monotheism does not do away with like the same kind of contradictions that you see you know polytheistic religion like um you know uh, when, when when god says that you know makes human beings the way that he makes them and uh says that there's a lot of evil and i'm gonna kill you know all of them except this one upstanding person and uh, his family um 
And then, you know, ultimately, you know, says, I'm not going to do this again because you know what? People are evil from the beginning. So I need to let go of this. I have sorrow in my heart. And he's sort of arguing with himself, his, his you know, like dealing with his own kind of internal contradictions. Um, that does not resolve uh, uh, the issues in polytheism in the sense that, you know, uh, if you have multiple gods, they're simply arguing against, you know, one another, right? They're, they're, they represent all the kind of like individual, you know, moorings and unmoorings and, and, and drives and so on and so forth that are kind of inherent in like, you know, one God. And mm -hmm. you see them arguing with himself. And Leo, what does he represent? Well, he represents the more kind of, you know, chaotic sort of, you know, variation of all this. We're like, you know, these people are too fucking noisy. Let me kill all of them. The other gods are more, you know, they're more accommodating. They're maybe more empathetic. God in the Bible has, you know, uh, drives that are destructive and chaotic and also ones that are very accommodating and empathetic as well. So all we mm -hmm. see here is just, you know, the only difference is that, you know, th this kind of internal war is you plays out within the mind of one person that is like one God that is like anthropomorphized. Whereas mm -hmm. like there we have gods that are just kind of, you know, it's the people that you and I know, like we all know evil people. We all know good people. We all know chaotic people. We all know orderly people. And this is the drama that plays out in that world. And, and, and God is, is uh, the one God is allowed to, to play out the drama just all internally. So, you know, that contradiction is, is never resolved in any kind of theological answer is, is, is just never going to, be you know very satisfying because it's it's always it's always going to be an ad hoc explanation i mean you know there, there's just kind of like no other way yeah well we we can uh maybe move on but the the one final comment toward the end of uh the professor's lecture there that that made me chuckle the first time i watched it and also again this time is uh, you know, he, he can't resist the wrap up, like the classic sermon style wrap up of, you know, in the end, here's why this shows God's goodness and whatever. Yeah. And he says something to the effect of like, what we learn is that, uh, you know, the, the, the calm, stable, uh, you know, goodness and reliability of God persists, no matter what life throws at us, no matter what storms befall us. And it's just like, dude, he's the one that made that, <laughs> that yeah. storm happen. It wasn't just that, uh, someone's yeah. walking along and an earthquake hits and, and God's like, no, I got you. Don't worry. God's like, yeah, I, I hate everything I've made. You know, you all are evil. I'm going to destroy every single one of you except this one and his like, you know, family. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just hilarious to me that the, the yeah, comment it, would be uh, God's, God's got your back, you know, even through life's difficulties. It's just like this, it's a prosperity gospel, uh, you know, moment at the end there. That's like nowhere in the actual telling of this account. Is that what I would get out of it? You know? Yeah. Uh, always like in the sense that responsibility does not lie necessarily with God in that way. Never. It reminds me of like, uh, uh, like when you like i remember like when there was um when you had like the gaza protests uh, a few years ago where you know uh, israel started like mowing down uh gaza protesters and i heard like commentators saying like you know this is you know terrible things are happening uh uh, uh people are getting killed and it's like like, well, like, what the fuck do you think happened? You think people in Gaza got, got hit by lightning or something? Right. Like, what do you think this is? Like, what do you like? What do you think is happening? Like, there's no, there's no responsibility, and yeah, it's it's always like the same way, right? If you if you don't want to so if you don't want to square with yeah. that, yeah.
If you, and, and, you know, the, the liberals that say that same stuff, like, you know, when Bush uh, was saying uh, during the Iraq war, mistakes were made, they were like, oh, look at that mm-hmm. passive voice. But, yeah. uh, you know, with their own like pet sort of justifications for, you know, whatever, you know, a uh, uh, bombing campaign or mowing down of whoever, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's the same kind of uh, it's, it's the same kind of technique. And, you know, it's, it's always been that way. But I mean, we, we mentioned the immortality stuff. Like we're we're pretty much like uh, at the end of the uh, the text now. Yeah. Um. So what was that like? And now it's like, it's it's eleven, right? Where he gets his um, where where he where so like you know Udinapishti after telling him about this uh, f- uh, uh flood story, it's uh, you know, sh- uh, 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 so Gil- Gilgamesh gets um. A challenge right like okay so if you want to you know if if you want immortality you know here's kind of like a, a taste of uh how that could happen right uh you have to be awake for like what was like something like seven days or something um right and, and of course like gilgamesh like right away just just falls asleep and uh uh, uh Udinapishti says okay so you 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 fall asleep uh, here's something that I could offer to you regardless. There is this uh, plant out in the ocean. If you get it, it's going to grant you immortality, right? And and Gilgamesh ultimately is able to find the plant. He he grabs it. He says he's going to bring it back to Uruk and uh, he's going to give it to like some old man and, and watch what happens. So he doesn't want to eat it first himself, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, so and, and uh, so he he has it happily, and ultimately uh, a serpent uh, steals away with it, and he realizes that you know th- this trip was for nothing in, in the sense that the thing that he wanted from it, right, the immortality, he, he's not going to get in the way that he wanted that immortality. Mm-hmm. Um. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, the, the text ends with, uh, you know, he, he returns to Uruk and, uh, uh, he, you know, he, he, you know, he says, I, I simply can't, right. I, I, I can't be moral in this way, but maybe there is like something else for me. Right. Um, and, and, uh, uh, after, you know, after, uh, he, you know, uh, like loses this plant, this is what he says, um, as it turned away, the serpent, it slowed its skin. Then Gilgamesh sat there weeping, down his cheeks the tears were coursing. He spoke to Urshanabi the boatman. For whom, Urshanabi, told my arms so hard? For whom ran dry the blood of my heart? Not for myself did I find a bounty. For the line of the earth I have done a favor. Now far and wide the tide is rising. Having opened the channel, I abandoned the tools. What thing would I find that served as my landmark had I only turned back and left the, bo- the boat on the shore? At 20 leagues, they broke bread. At 30 leagues, they pitched camp, right? This is going back to like that repetition from Enkidu when right. they were uh, confronting um, um, uh, 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 Humbaba. When mm-hmm. they arrived in Uruk, the sheepfold said Gilgamesh to him to Urshanabi, the boatman. O Urshanabi, climb Uruk's wall and walk back and forth. Survey its foundations, examine the brickwork. Were its bricks not fired in an oven? Did the seven sages not lay its foundations? A square mile is a city, a square mile date grove, a square mile is clay pit, half a square mile the temple of Ishtar, three square miles and half 
is Uruk's expanse, right? And this is how uh, at least my edition ends, right? Which is, uh, this is similar to how it starts, right? Look at this land, look uh -huh. at the city, look at everything that has been built. And now it's almost like, but but the, the thing is at the beginning when it starts, um, that is like the, the, the writer, right? The narrator saying that. And here it's Gilgamesh saying it as a realization. Back then it's just kind of, you know, it's a declarative. Here, you know, it, it seems to be a part of like a, a sense of uh, regeneration, a sense of continuity, a sense of like something new is going to come with this, right? This is this is where my immortality might be, right? And in, in the great uh -huh. works that I might construct. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, very kind of modern ending. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think what you just said there is how I also interpreted it or felt where, you know, he's now gone through this morning quest over in Kidu and um, maybe is just ref in a reflective mood on everything he's been through and what they went through together. And he doesn't achieve immortality, even though he's met the person who did and told him how that came about. And so he, he's got more knowledge. He's got more wisdom now, we would assume. And mm -hmm. he comes back to quote, where it all began, you know, um, comes back to Uruk and it's almost like he's looking at it with fresh eyes and he's impressed by it again, mm. in a way, and telling the boatman, like, look, look, you know, me measure it. Like, th this is what I've built and now I'm back and uh, maybe we'll make it greater and grander than it's ever been kind of thing. But not, but we don't know any of that for sure, right? The, the text would be weakened probably if then it started to go on and talk about a next chapter where he is in fact king again and building more monuments building more mm -hmm. orchards and temples and whatever it's just um he's looking at it and and like i said you know earlier um it just it kind of gives me this this sense of you know if this were a film it'd be just you know him standing at the top of a a, a butte or a cliff or something and looking down on the city and then you know maybe mm -hmm. a quick shot of his face and then just a shot of the city as you know, for a still frame it for a few moments while a bird flies by and the wind whips through some trees or something. And, and it's just, just there, it's there. Um, mm -hmm. What's going to become of it, what's going to happen. And we're not, we're not given anything more than that. So um, yeah, again, it, it is, it's as interesting as that modern feeling ending. There is no real, um, you know, and they lived happily ever after kind of sense to the whole thing or, or even redemption. I mean, it, it is filled with a, some of these feelings of regret and failure mm -hmm. on the part of Gilgamesh um, that you know that, that we're sitting there with uh, ourselves with him. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, if if you want, I can maybe just read a couple highlighted sections from that tablet twelve where he's you know yeah, going I mean to another world. Yeah, I, I mean, if there was something good there, because uh, my just my edition says that, so like it's not part of the epic, right? But it, it's like an Akkadian uh, prose translation of something that was just added in as a kind of like, well, this is just relevant material. But it does strike me that, you know, the way that this ends here, right? With Gilgamesh just kind of like looking out, repeating the start, uh, that that seems to be like a, a, you know, I don't want to call it a perfect ending, but um, uh if I if I were to write, you know, uh, if I were to have written this epic, this is exactly how I would uh, end it, right? Um, it, there's mm -hmm. just a lot of like loaded, you know, like like coiled, like poetic uh, power uh, doing things uh, in, in in that way specifically. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I still think that ending it at the eleventh tablet is, you know, is the best thing, and just viewing viewing tablet twelve as some kind of epilogue, you know, not really a continuation of that story. It, it does have a very separate feel to it. Some of the language is 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 different. Um, but I'll just read a couple, you know, a few lines that I highlighted here. So um, this is from where he's Gilgamesh has had like this drum and drumstick fall into the netherworld. And he's asking to be able to uh, to have Enkidu retrieve it for him. He said to Nergal, king of the netherworld, open a hole in the roof of the netherworld so Enkidu may rise up like a vapor out of the netherworld into the upper. So this wanting of you know, a reunion with Enkidu. Nergal obeyed the voice of Ea, the god. The hole in the floor of the upper world was open. The spirit of Enkidu, a puff of breath, came forth from the netherworld into the upper. Then Gilgamesh and Enkidu, companions, tried to embrace and kiss one another, companions. Sighing toward one another, they spoke these words. Now tell me how it is in the netherworld. I will not tell you. If I told you how it is in the netherworld, the arrangement of things, you would sit down and weep because I told you. And then it kind of goes on. And, and finally, Enkidu agrees to tell, to answer some questions. Um, that Gilgamesh wants to ask. So this is sort of how the whole thing ends. Have you seen in another world, the famous warrior, he who fell on the battlefield in glory? The grieving parents raise up the head of the sun. The mourning wife grieves at the couch of death. And he whose corpse was thrown away unburied, he wanders without rest through the world down there. The one who goes to the netherworld without leaving behind him any to mourn for him, garbage is what he eats in the netherworld no dog would eat the food he has to eat. And that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you get this sense that it's, you know, Gilgamesh kind of still up in the upper world and uh, his life has gone on and he's wondering, you know, like these are things that kind of apply to me and how I am. How are, how are these kind of people treated in the world beyond? Uh, and he doesn't really get many reassurances, you know? So yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of bleak really kind of bleak language and you get the sense of like Enkidu has continued in a way to uh to just sort of suffer and exist down there yeah so anyway yeah that's that's tablet 12 yeah well i mean we had uh so, some other stuff uh planned after this but honestly i'm just kind of tired <laughs> um and uh i mean we're gonna have another uh artifact with uh me dan and uh bruce uh ario uh next week so there's gonna be more uh more stuff uh coming soon um so thank you guys for uh watching if you're not subscribed please hit subscribe uh please hit like uh that at a bare minimum just helps a lot so uh, thank you guys for sitting through this whole thing and uh, we'll see you again soon. Sounds good. Oh my God. Oh my God.